everyone. Hi, hello. It is me, Allison Rosen. Welcome to another episode of Allison Rosen is your new best friend. I'm sitting here with one of my favorite people, Pete Holmes, and a fan favorite. Welcome back. <laughs> did you have sound effects last time I did this? I think we I think did. did. I think we wow. did. Wow. I, I don't love know. It. You know what? I don't know that we had the applause. Yeah, no. <laughs> wow. Okay. Do you have now we do. We're going to grab that and forevermore we will. So I intend to heap praise on you oh. for your new HBO show. Did you get crashing? I did. I watched oh. it last night. I loved it. I didn't know we could do that. You we know can. what I mean? Like it's exciting. Like you asked to see it. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, I don't know. And then it worked out. I'm glad it worked out. Gwyn hooked me up. Gwyn? Gwyn. Uh, I'm I'm so happy you liked it because you're one of the few people that's seen it. Well, yay. I wish it could. You know what? I realized as I was about to say, I wish, like, it I wish it got picked up. It did get picked no, up. No, no. I was going to say, I wish, it could, I wish it could stay like that. Uh, and then I realized that would be a terrible situation for you if it stayed. Like secret. Well, oh or God. just like, wow, a lot of people didn't watch this, but Allison did. Uh, <laughs> like, that's funny. Like, you wise, still be special. Yeah, like, ego-wise, for me, Maybe I was like... go the other way. I didn't mean to know. <laughs> like, everybody's giving you the whole season on one day. Maybe we'll go really hard in the other direction and be like, you need to be invited. Like, early Facebook. Ooh, I like that. <laughs> or like that... That celeb only dating app, Raya. Have you heard about that? I have heard of Raya. Celeb only. Yeah. I'd like to go on. I'd like to get an account. I, w- I wonder if I could. And then just be like, you're not a celeb. Just like find all the people <laughs> right. that, that don't belong on there. I heard Moby's on there. I believe it. Moby's around. Yeah. I see Moby from time to time. He's fairly accessible as far as celebs go. He's actually on OKCupid. A friend of mine went on a date with him. Oh, really? Yeah. Really? Yeah, he's he's out there. He's doing it. I like that. I like when people can just be like, yeah, Moby. I heard him introduce himself once. Mm -hmm. uh, And he said, I'm Moby. I I was kind of like, I wonder if he's like, I'm Dan. (laughs) Is that his actual name? Daniel Mobius or something. (laughs) Like, I don't know. Oh, my God. If your name is Daniel Mobius, but you go by Moby, I feel like you're Uh, selling yourself short. Daniel Mobius is a better name. That's so cool. I'm Daniel Mobius. I don't know. But uh, yeah, no, it would be fun to to do some celeb only dating because I I only want to (laughs) date other terrible people. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. Are you also the worst? (laughs) Are you? Do you also want to listen to me talk while you scan for something that makes you think of yourself? That sounds terrible. My girlfriend is proudly a non-celebrity. You know the the Damon route, Matt Damon. Sure, I like the Damon route. Sure, not that I'm Matty D. Nobody is. No, there's only one except Matty D. Yeah, but you know, I like that. You know, steady Eddie. Well, how is it for her dating a celeb like you? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I was declined from Raya. Is it Raya? Yeah, I, uh, it's. I don't know if it's Naya, Raya or Raya. Raya, Raya. Moby, it's R A Y A. I don't know if it's Raya or Raya. I don't know. It doesn't but matter. I'm married, but I wish I could be on there just because I want to be accepted by them, and I just want to see what's going on. Yeah, it's the verified check mark of dating. Exactly. She uh, Val is the best, and one of the things that I really like about Valerie is she's the best person to give gifts, and all. It, so my life has elements of 
wow, what a gift that we get to go to this thing mm-hmm. or something or uh, see a movie before it's out or whatever it might be. Okay, not, she's not jaded. That's what I mean. Is she she gets excited and it's fun. I know it sounds kind of paternal, but it is fun to experience things through her excitement because I'm like, although she's starting to kind of come over to my side, I'm like, we could go to that party and we'll see famous people. But now we're at the point where we're like, and then we don't go. <laughs> but like just six months ago, we would go. We go. We go to sometimes. And she does enjoy it. Right. But for the most part, it's pretty ordinary. And I know everybody says that, but it really is. I believe you. It is. Yeah. You can go ahead and believe <laughs> us. To ask all our Postmates delivery people. We have a very normal existence. <laughs> um, okay. So I intend to heap specific praise on you about yeah. the HBO show. But first, let's talk about this. You were the very first guest on my podcast ever. I know. You're my I, old best friend. I know. We should change <laughs> should change a song just for you. And on that podcast, recorded... In my Hollywood home, which you dubbed a Hobbit house, yeah, because it did seem like hobbits should live there. This this place you're in now is like a continuation. You clearly like this style, right? The Hobbit style? No, just kind of like what? What do you call this? What is the style of home? Because it reminds me of your old place. That may that makes me feel good because I feel like it's quaint. Yeah, it's I cozy. feel like the, well, the place that not small. I'm not doing code for small. People call my place cozy all the time. <laughs> I'm not doing that. I mean, like it feels warm. Yeah, I want a nap here. I will now. But the, the, pla- the place... <laughs> That's a threat. <laughs> do it. Go for it. It would make me know that you feel really relaxed. Yeah. The Hollywood place had sort of a like enchanting foresty vibe. Yep. And I don't feel like this place does. But there's still some archways and shit. It's not the Shire, but it's in <laughs> right. the Tolkien universe. Okay. Like I feel like elves might live here. Oh, good. It's like an Airbnb for elves. It's my dream. Elf Airbnb. <laughs> Elf, Elf, I like that. So anyway, uh, on that podcast, yeah. in the Shire, um, <laughs> you said, at, although you're straight, that you wanted to sleep with Ryan Gosling yeah. after you had seen Crash. Uh, you mean, you're, it's not Crash. It's not uh, Crash. What's that? Drive. Movie? I knew. It's sa- same number it's of letters. Because my Crashing. Yes. And you said it out already. Well, and also there is a movie called Crash. There is, yeah. I think but it's we get, totally different. I think with- we get in accidents just to touch each other. <laughs> <laughs> then they won all the awards, remember? Yeah, sure. Yes. Um, but so anyway, have you seen La La Land? I did. What'd you think? Because I know, just saw it and I'm all about it. And now I'm all about him. And I was never really into I him. I know. I got to be ahead of the curve for something. Yeah. Like the people that fell in love with Ryan, let's just call him Ryan, okay. uh, because of Drive, actually were ahead of the curve. We got to be – I liked Ryan when he was on a Saved by the Bell spinoff that took place at sea. That's what was true. that called? You might want you might want to get a Googling. How uh, did I miss – that's right up my alley. He was the Zach Morris of a high school on the open water. Oh, my God. And I remember watching it and uh, certainly – to be honest, it's not really sexual. <laughs> Sometimes like my – Is fa- it softly sensual like the inauguration? It's definitely soft. What does that mean? Oh, tr- I think Trump said that the inauguration – Would be softly sensual? Maybe it wasn't Trump himself, but oh, someone boy. speaking about the inauguration said it would be That's softly great. sensual. Just a woman's face being clasped gently by a <laughs> tiny hand. <laughs> Isn't this softly sensual? It's going to be fantastic. <laughs> uh, you know, what it is is – what I think is interesting about Ryan is – 
I, I have a joke about this that I haven't done in a while. I should bring it back. It's about how straight guys do know what good-looking men look like. Despite the denials. They, they love being like, I don't know. I had a yeah. friend who was like, I don't know. I'm like, yes, you do. How do you get your hair cut? You, you, you tell them something. You're right. going for something. My father, who is like a very – I don't like the term red blooded American as if gay people have different colored blood. But I'm just <laughs> saying he, he's a real like kind of traditional mm-hmm. right across the plate guy. But when he gets his haircut, he has who who knows a Harrison Ford, uh, what's his name, Warren Beatty. Somebody is in there that it's when he buys yeah. a blazer, he's wondering, do I look like Warren Beatty? So for me, and that's how I had to because after my HBO special came out, where I, it's the second special in a row where I use Ryan Gosling as a go-to for a man that I would fuck. And my dad just texted me like, Ryan Gosling, question mark? And I was like, <laughs> uh, this, might be, this might be a little bit much for you guys. I don't know if you'll understand. Because it's not uh, – n- not to be defensive. It's not that I want to fuck him. It's that I want to be him. And mm-hmm. In fact, that was my joke. Right. I want to – it's not – I don't want to put my dick in him. I want to go all the way in <laughs> and wear him like a puppet. That's yeah. why I, I just want to be that person. <laughs> right. Um, so what was your question? How did that start? Uh, it was oh, just, La La Land. Yeah. I, I thought it was fine. I, I, I'm not, I don't have the fever. I, I liked it. I didn't get the fever. It's interesting. I um... – <laughs> It's going to win everything. But yeah. it didn't give me the fever. It, I, I caught the fever at the very end of the movie without, the end? without spoiling it. It was more. Um, mm. Did that do it? Great for you? ending. Yes. Great ending. Uh, without spoiling it, if you can give people what you think they want and what might be true to the script, that's an impressive movie, right? And that is what Val and I talked about. We were like, "Holy shit!" They really like think about a movie like uh, Up in the Air. Mm-hmm. Up in the Air. Um, at the end, he goes to the woman's house whom he loves and she has children. And you realize that he's been kind of having an affair that he didn't know. T- horrible, <laughs> disappointing. Right. I'm not saying it's a bad ending. I am saying it's probably part of why it didn't do better mm-hmm. as a movie if you're really going to look at it from like the studio's perspective or something. Yeah, it's interesting. It both disappoints and satisfies you. That's what this one. Does. We're talking about La La yes, Land now. exactly. It's, it's like Thai food. It's, it's spicy and sweet somehow. You're just kind of like, oh, it was both and I really liked it. So I'm not a monster. I watched and I was like, this is great. Like you do have a soul. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> exactly. I can watch and be like, I get it. That uh-huh. opening number is phenomenal. He's great in it. Mm-hmm. I've had conversations about how great he is. And I Emma, didn't... Emma Stone is great. Or maybe actually it's a testament to his greatness that he could say the term pissy caca twice. Huh. And... It didn't ruin the movie for me. Yeah. It almost did. Right? Ryan, again, my dear friend Ryan, <laughs> he is unfairly funny. And mm-hmm. he does things – Kumail and I were just talking about him. We were talking about that movie, uh, La La Land, where where he says like – she's like, did I can't remember exactly. But she's like, did you just refer to yourself as blah, blah, blah? And he A goes, serious musician. Yeah. And he goes, I didn't say that. But he says it like <laughs> – A second. He yeah. throws it away. He's the king of the X Factor. He does things that are funny because of how he's did them. Like, right. And he'll – like the other guys. Did you see the other guys? Mm-mm. 
no one saw it, I feel like. He does like 15 of them. Those things where the joke is how he opens the door and it closes on him and he opens it again. Right. And the timing of how he's talking while that's happening. There's like 15 of those moments. Having just done an HBO show in eight episodes, I was trying in every episode to get one. They're so hard to get where you're like, and the way that I pick up the thing mm-hmm. when the thing and then this goes by and I say it perfectly. It's a, he's, he's a like virtuoso. S- subtle physical comedy Involving timing, is that- involving time, and knowing when to play it super straight, and that's way funnier. And right, he's so funny when he does it straight. Like the other guys, uh, there's a line where uh, he they're they're looking for a dead girl, I guess, and he, and uh, Russell Crowe, his partner or whatever, goes the porno star, and he goes the young lady. The, the porno young lady. Like, <laughs> I can't do it, is my point. It's like, mm-hmm. I watched it, and I rewound it, and I watched him do it five times, and I was like, even right after he says it, if I try and say it the way he does it, he has this unearthly timing, out-of-this-world out of timing that I can't even mimic. So he's, he's amazing. <laughs> well, I'm on board now. Yeah, he's great. Maybe he learned it on Breaker High. Breaker High! That's where, it. Where he played Sean Stanley Hanlon, the wannabe ladies' man slash nerd. Yeah. What year Perfect. was this? Was I in a coma? It's the 80s, right? Early 90s. I was here at that point. 97 to 98. Oh. That means I was in high school. I was a senior in high school and watched it and liked it. So deal with that. I'm going to have to YouTube it because it sounds amazing. It was one season? Two? There were... 44 episodes, so that's... That sounds like, like a season. It sounds like four seasons. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Maybe... I don't know. Wow. He, I, I Clearly, he's he's very talented. Oh, it, it, technically, it's one season. It was one 44-episode season. That's how wow. seasons were back then. Yikes. Oh, yeah, because it's like daytime kids right. TV stuff. But my mom saw La La Land. She loved it, and now she gets it. You know what I mean? She's like, oh, I get it. Now the my Ryan Gosling is, thing? Yeah. She also... Like her son wants to have sex with her. <laughs> um, so, so let's talk about Crashing, your yeah. HBO show, which premieres February 17, 19. 7, 9? 19. Okay. And <laughs> I was so close. Yeah, you I were very close. A digit, correct. And yeah. the, the correct month. Um, so I watched it last night. My husband watched it with me. And we were both just going on and on about how much by the end, like, oh, I'm I'm in. Really? And there was something so undeniable about it. And wow. for me, every aspect of it, of it was there. The story sucked me in. The acting was great. It was funny. It was so well written. Because mm. I feel like I've seen so many shows where I watch the first episode and I'm like, mm, I'm not giving up on it yet, but I'm not in it yet. Sure, sure. You know? Or like, I, I, I watch it because I like the person but how did this script get this far? Do you know, I know what I mean? Exactly Whereas there was, I had no reservations. Oh, that's such a great compliment. Thank you. And I feel like that's so rare. It's so, and it's, it's such a pleasure to know the person that created that thing because it's so much easier to be able to say all that. Yeah. Oh, that's great. <laughs> so Thank I you. loved, I loved it, loved it, loved Pilots it. Pilots are tricky, man. Yeah. I have a new appreciation for the perfect pilot. What did I just watch that I thought, uh, oh, uh, 11, 63? Oh, I don't even know what that is. It's uh, the James Franco goes back, it's a Stephen King story, mm-hmm. goes back in time to stop the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Oh. The pilot is like Breaking Bad level of like, holy shit, <laughs> was this even a pilot or did they just 
by the whole, I don't even know if it was a pilot because it's a, it's like an hour and a half, hour and 40 minutes and it's perfect. So now I am like you, I'm on the search for those perfect pilots. And when I wrote uh, the pilot, people would be like, this is great. This is like somebody, a friend of mine, Trip, was even like, this is the perfect pilot. And I read all these pilots and you don't really believe it until somebody told me something really nice, that it was really uh, applicable rather. They're like, a show exists three times. It's like the way you write it, mm-hmm. the way you shoot it, and then the way you edit it. It, it exists. And maybe even there's the fourth way, which is the way you pictured it right. at the beginning. So to have it get to the end uh, and have it still be something that you liked is is really great to hear. So what I wondered what, when watching it, and you tell me how much we can reveal a Sure. about it i know a lot of your backstory so i know that it's largely autobiographical in its essence absolutely yeah but i was wondering like how autobiographical is the pilot really i know that you were married and your wife was having an affair mm-hmm. um and you guys lived not in the city right so i mean all of that is in there but right the specifics of that's about it okay it's not uh why, it's almost like I wrote a myth. I'm really into like myths and metaphors mm-hmm. and stuff. This process, process helped me understand why people tell non-truths to convey feelings more accurately. So we could have made the show. It would have been, uh, I think, legally a nightmare because you can't really <laughs> right. take a, a true experience and just put it on the screen and be like, deal with it. You know, uh, That's why they always have that thing where it's like any similarities are coincidental and that sort of stuff. And then so, like that heavily winking, any similarities exactly. are Exactly. Like the beginning of Forgetting Sarah. Uh, no, at the beginning of 500 Days of Summer mm-hmm. because especially you, Becky Dickinson <laughs> or whatever. Um, so it wasn't, it wasn't that. It, it was like I had the feeling of a guy, a, a, a religious guy who married the first person he ever dated and slept with, obviously, and uh, and then she leaves him. So I had that as something that happened. Mm-hmm. That's real. And then the way that you try and get at and convey that feeling is with a bunch of lies. You know, like the way that it comes out in the show to my parents is way bigger than what actually happened. But you're like, but it was like this. It felt like it that. It felt like that. And like, that's sun that's such better storytelling than just doing we could have done like a real indie thing where a heartbreak is like waking up and you think she's there and she's not there. And, right. and maybe that would like have been a small lovely moments. small we could have done that. We went like what is the essence of a breakup when you're very inexperienced? You're not a good comedian yet. You don't know anything about the world. Like Artie says in the pilot, he goes, babe in the woods. <laughs> We're like, that's what the show is. It's a babe in the woods. And how do we convey that quickly? So it is based on a kernel of a real thing. Mm-hmm. But it's really the emotion that I drew from the most rather than facts. Like the wife character is very different. My parents are, are pretty different. The guy, everybody else is very different. It's very okay. different stuff. Um, it, it, it's interesting. You know, I have a journalism background and I'm very, in terms of writing, very oriented toward nonfiction and toward like, I want to translate what I just experienced into words and yeah. find like almost, shine, you know, with like a prism, like find all these different angles on it that people didn't notice, but really like ring the most truth out of something that I just experienced versus... My husband is much more of a storyteller, fiction, Mm. and he's always – and like I have sort of a block about my writing fiction myself. I've done it before, but it's always like – it's like a few details were changed. Right. Um, 
For the and most part, it was nonfiction. Pretty much, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, someone else would think it was fiction, but yeah. I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and he's always saying that, like, if you could free yourself up, I think you would find it so liberating to write fiction because you kind of what you're saying, you can get at the emotional truth of something. It can actually better be more that way. effective. Yeah, it can be more effective than telling the literal story. Have you always known that? Happened. No, that this was a new experience for me because I, I think initially. The first, first draft, and I wrote, I think, maybe 12 drafts of the pilot. Maybe wow. It's either 12 or 16. It was a lot. Mm-hmm. It was a lot of rewriting, a lot of showing it to uh, Judd Apatow and getting notes and rewriting it and rewriting it and rewriting it. And if you read the first one, it was probably – it was. Who are we going to ask if not me? It was <laughs> yeah. way more – John Mulaney. <laughs> you probably did read it. It was way more factual. Like the names probably were even similar in some instances and all that sort of stuff because I was just doing it almost like a journal. Like I right. remember this happening and this happening. And then slowly, it, it's, that's what they always say about writing is killing your darlings. You know, there's this moment where you're like, well, we have to do that. I mean, mm-hmm. that's so who we were. But then the character of the wife starts to change. It's Lauren Lapkus now. And now we're writing it for Lauren and who, how she's funny and how she talks and how she is. And we're changing where we live and we're changing – my situation and all that sort of stuff, like where I'm at in comedy and everything, uh, making me even newer, I think. Right. But uh, it was new. I, I didn't expect to get a, an end result that was more true with less, with fewer facts. But we need people like you. It can't all be baloney <laughs> for, for Joni. You know, like, I don't know if you heard that NPR where the guy went to, I believe it's Shenzhen, Shenzhen, China, anyway, where they make all the iPhones and stuff. Mm. And he got in big trouble, and it was on This American Life, and Ira Glass yes. really held him to the fire and was like, you fucking dick, you you lied to us. I remember when that happened, because the guy told these stories, he was very eloquent, and he was like, I went, and the guy took my iPad, and with a crippled hand, because he had been manufacturing iPads his whole life, he cleaned my screen for the second time you know because that's what he did Mm -hmm. he cleaned screens with toxic chemicals and he talks about his claw hand swooshing back and forth he he had never seen one turned on before and that turned out to not be true and i remember first and foremost i'm not an idiot i understand that journalism should be journalism uh i I, if i were that guy's lawyer (laughs) Because he go, he went on and he was kind of like, look, I like he kind of floundered and it was embarrassing and hard to listen to. What it, the weird thing about that story is when it came out that he was lying, that he made up mm-hmm. a narrative, we just threw it away. You, you're you're using a, a MacBook. I have an iPhone. We're all using Apple products constantly because we were all off the hook. We all were like, well, you lied. So let's just go back. Oh, there's still nets on that building to stop people from killing themselves. He didn't make that up. Mm-hmm. He didn't make this up. He right, didn't make this up. He, he embellished. So, but I remember that story and I got the message so much more clearly mm-hmm. because he embellished, because he made it. I wish he had said, this is fictionalized. Right. But- but based on true events. <laughs> exactly. But that, there's no category. Yeah. I'm not going to do what I do on my podcast and bring the Bible in. But there used to be a style of thinking that was not true or false. It was the middle way. What was, was that called? It's Semitic storytelling. It's okay. what the Gospels are. It's 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 what I would say the Old Testament is as well. It's the sort of like it's about the feeling, not the fact. And But it's different than allegorical? 
I think so. I'm not an. I, it, here you go throwing allegories at me, and I'm like, oh, and oh, I don't even shit, know what the I actual. Don't even... I don't even know what that term means. I just mean different than like a figurative or like yeah. a fable or something. It, it wasn't a fairy tale. It was like I'm telling you something true. But the facts might not be true. So when that guy told me... Oh, that's me, like every story my dad tells. Exactly. Well, dads, yes. Dads get it. Dads are actually taking part in a rich history <laughs> that human beings have. Yeah. It's like trying to explain something to your dog. You know what I mean? You might not use facts. <laughs> like if your dog could talk and could have that much mental capacity. Or to a child, I suppose. Right. This is where you get like Santa Claus or whatever. You want to teach children that essential things can be unseen and goodness can be rewarded or whatever it might be. So you tell them the story of Santa Claus. Santa Claus isn't not true if you're looking at it from that perspective. Mm -hmm. Just in the same way that that guy's horrible misuse of NPR's money and trust was still kind of true. Yet we all just went, well, he made some shit up. Let's continue not caring about the workers in China. Yeah. But I, I'm like, no, just re-release the story and be like, some of the facts have been changed into a, a myth, into a story. And then would be like, but for some reason, we don't, like I, going back, we don't have a category in our brains culturally mm-hmm. for things that aren't necessarily factually true, but are true in their essence. Right. We want to know if it's bullshit or not. This is, this is the age of reason. Is it? Can we build a bridge with these blueprints or not? No, you can't. But it looks pretty on the paper. Well, this is bullshit. You know what I mean? Like, and I get it. I get it. I don't. I don't want a doctor that went to a <laughs> mythical medical school. Yeah. You know what I mean? I don't want a surgeon that's like, oh, I, uh, they said the knife is like a toad, and, <laughs> and your belly is like the swamp, and I gotta get the toad and the swamp. Right. I don't want that. Wait, how but, long do I have left? Eons, <laughs> or just a blink of an eye? Like, I need something more practical. <laughs> exactly. But unfortunately, one of the things we're losing is that space. And entertainment can be one of those places. Like, mm. it's fun to do a show that go, that we say, like, look, this isn't really what happened. But it is when I watch it. And the number of people that I know that had kind of that starter marriage, especially religious people that got married because they had sex with somebody or they wanted to, more likely, uh, that they can watch this show and go, like, that is what it feels like. It feels lonely or weird or funny in this way, even though none of it literally happened. Mm-hmm. Or only some of it literally happened. That's well, a long now- way to make people not interested in my <laughs> show. <laughs> no, they're going to love it. And now a reading from Socrates. <laughs> well, now I feel like a like is pedantic the right word? Because now I want to ask about... What an allegory is. <laughs> this podcast should come with a glossary. Yes. But like a pretty basic one, yeah. <laughs> just for the words that we didn't remember. Because um, now I want to ask about the your real life experience of these things. I'm happy to talk it, about okay. that. Yeah. Well, so in in the pilot, IRL. Oh, not IRL. Not IRL. In the pilot. In the pilot, Artie Lang is uh, a big part of it, and he's fantastic. Yeah. Was there an Artie Lang like character in your life? The true impetus for the show. So the idea of the show is. A young guy, youngish, uh, is ma- married to the first girl, like all that. His wife leaves him and then he's kicked out. He has nowhere to go. He has no money and he's not even good at comedy. Mm-hmm. And he's kind of caught in the unlikely safety net of the comedy scene. All these like degenerates and deadbeats. And I say that with love. These are my friends. But, you know, some of them are rough around the edges like Artie Lang. For right. Example. Uh, so it wasn't Artie, literally. I met Artie when we did the show. 
But when my, in real life, when my wife uh, left me, the first person I called was Nick Kroll because I was just like, he's just one of those guys that knows everything. And mm-hmm. you're like, does anybody have an apartment? <laughs> I didn't even tell him my wife was leaving. I was just kind of, I wish I had a transcript of the phone call. <laughs> so you weren't really friends with him yet then? We were, we were buddies. Okay. That, that's kind of the point of the show. Again, uh, that's one of the essences that we're trying to get across is here's a guy in the he, one foot in the shallow end of comedy. Mm-hmm. And how many people do you know that have one foot in the shallow end of their passion, of their dream, of the thing that seems too big to dare to go for? And that's where I was and that's where I am in the show. And then some sort of tragedy pushes you in the pool. And then Nick Kroll, who it was just a buddy, because you got your wife, you got your life, right. you kind of – Doing fine. Where but, were you guys? Were you in Connecticut? No, we lived in upstate okay. New York. Yeah, um, off the Hudson line in Sleepy Hollow. Mm. Very weird to have your wife leave you when you're leaving, living behind a cemetery in Sleepy Hollow. You really? You I, think there really would be no one else? What do you mean? I just mean like, like how could she meet? How someone could she else? meet? So, well, <laughs> she, you're the only guy in town. Yeah, I know. They met back in the city. They knew each other our whole marriage. Oh. I actually knew the guy. I, th- I thought he was a great guy. I don't know him anymore. I really thought he was great. We got along gotcha. well. <laughs> I didn't see him often, but I don't harbor any I'm that fucking piece of shit. I, in fact, doing the show is everything I've done since actually splitting up has been trying to understand. My wife's perspective. Mm-hmm. And you'll see that on the show. Uh, the character of my wife on the show is also very relatable mm-hmm. and understandable. She's not some uh, Disney villain in the show. And she wasn't some Disney villain in life. And neither was the guy. These were real people right. working out their feelings and falling in kind of inconvenient love with each other and, and leaving a sweet golden retriever of a man, which was me. <laughs> I'm just over there making Easy Mac and my, <laughs> my poor wife had to break my heart. You know what I mean? I now have broken up with people that had no idea that you were going to break up with them. And it's <sighs> the worst thing in the world. It hurts my heart just hearing about it I and know, thinking it. It's the worst. It, it's so somebody... you were like none the wise. You had no idea this was happening. Well, there was, you know, there was a, some providence in that we lived upstate. Because mm-hmm. what happened was we were living in Park Slope, and I loved it. And I thought that was the country. Frankly, I still do. <laughs> I, I, I think if you're living in New York and you live in Park Slope, it's like living in Venice if you're in Los Angeles. It's right. Like you're 45 minutes to an hour away from the city. Mm-hmm. I know you can get the R train, and if you get lucky, but you can make it faster. But still, it's a totally different pace. It's, it's gone. It's, yeah. it's all... Uh, I'm not making fun. It's a lot of lesbian couples and and people with golden retrievers and children everywhere. That's right. where everyone goes to be a lesbian, have a family <laughs> and a dog. That's where you want to be. Yeah. And there I was, 25, 26. Yeah, 25. Actually, 24 when I moved there. Anyway, so I was 24. It was a little bit weird. And I thought I was doing like a compromising thing. Uh, but then she and I used to go upstate all the time to this uh, – it's called – I think it's called Rockefeller State Park. It's this 100-acre wood that was about an hour drive from Park Slope. So on the weekends, we would drive up there and would walk around the park and we'd be like, oh, this is so lovely. And then I could tell I, my wife was fading. Like she just wasn't mm-hmm. a city person. That was literally – I considered that our only problem. Oh, and I really did think it was our only problem. So I was like, we're good. Our only problem <laughs> is that she loves the country and I love the city. 
looking back, I'm kind of like, that's a, that's a fundamental problem. That's a yeah. pretty big deal. If she, you know, she's kind of from a rural area and wanted to run and look at deer and all that sort of stuff. And I just wanted to be affirmed and feel connected and have access to shows and, and opportunities and all that sort of achievement stuff. Like I needed to feel relevant very right. badly. I still do, but way less than I needed to because I, I've scratched the itch. But back mm-hmm. then, God, I was so driven. driven. Quietly. I didn't go around flapping my gums about how I was going to put my dick in the earth. But I was just kind of like <laughs> – but if, if maybe if you got me drunk or something, I'd be like, I'm going to change the world. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I really believed in myself and wanted to do it. We used to call it lightning bolt because we'd go visit her family or whatever. And I wouldn't have done a set or seen a cab or even watched comedy or talked to a comedian and I'd start to get really antsy. Mm-hmm. Like really now I'm I'm proud that Valerie and I can go to Hawaii for a week and I'm not I'm fine. I'm better than fine. I'm like sad to go home. I'm like, this is great. And then I go home and I'm still good at stand up. You know yeah. what I mean? Like I'm past the threshold. Well you've accomplished a lot more now. Whereas it sounds right. like then you were like more in your larval form of You need life. to prove it. Yeah. You need to prove it real hard. So then we, so I saw that she was fading and, you know, I'm not a, again, I like La La Land. I'm not a monster. And I was like, (laughs) what if we flip it? Like we always talked about, we were looking at houses that were like in Woodstock. That's like two hours Mm -hmm. north. First of all, we couldn't afford anything there. I don't know what we were doing. But we wanted to move to the country, which seems so crazy. I was like, we looked at all these houses. I was like, oh, this one's right by the train. And it's only, I used to be like, it's only two hours if you get the express. (laughs) thinking the power of delusion you know what i mean like we didn't want to have i never ever 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 considered divorce as an option and it wasn't because of some sort of fear of god or like my family will disown me it was just like why would we do that we're married like Mm -hmm. it just like you were happy with her i was happy it was i looking back i'm like that wasn't a life like i i filled in so much more but looking back, I didn't know any better. So mm-hmm. I was like, this is as good as it gets. Hmm. We don't fight. You know those? Yeah. It's like, we don't fight. And I, I don't fight with Valerie. I'm just not a fighter. I've had one relationship where I fought with a person. But but like, I just the lack of problems was the biggest virtue. <laughs> yeah, was, it sounds like it was comfortable. It was, oh, there you go. It was comfortable. And that, again, that's kind of one of the things we're touching on in the show is what happens when you're kicked out of your comfort zone. And that's the only way the universe or whatever you want to call it gets our attention, the way growth gets your attention. A disruption like a pregnancy (laughs) or, you know, a breakup or a loss of a friend, loved one. All these things that we wouldn't wish on our enemies happen to us. And even though they're horrible at the time, they end up taking us where we wanted to go, where we needed to go. Right. Maybe not even where you wanted to go, but where you needed to go. I like there's a Joseph Campbell quote where he says, the treasure you seek is in the cave you're afraid to go in. Mm. I was like, yeah, that's right. And the only thing that gets you in the cave sometimes is a tiger behind you in the woods. And then you run in the cave. You know what I mean? You never would have asked for a tiger. But once you've conquered the cave, you're like, oh, I kind of owe that tiger. That's kind of one of the things the show is about. So we moved upstate because I was like, we're not going to move to Woodstock. But what if we go in the middle ground? We'll live near the park and I'll just commute. 45 minutes if you catch an express train. The truth is, is 45 minutes to Times Square, which is then another <laughs> 20 minutes to where mm-hmm. you're going. But, you but know, still, in terms of New York like, commutes, not, that's not that bad. It's not that bad if you're 
really fulfilled and happy. Yeah. I was with Valerie. We did some shooting near where I used to live. And as a, as a lark or whatever you want to call it, I was like, let's go. I'll show you where I used to live. And that place was sad. It just, it just was sad. But the neighborhood wasn't bad. I was like, if you were – like if I think about like uh, the people who probably live upstate, like I'm sure – I don't know for a fact, but like Colbert mm-hmm. probably lives in Connecticut or something like that. Great. Because he has – we're like drug addicts, comedians. <laughs> and he has an easy fix and he bangs it out and then he's home by six, seven and he's in Connecticut. Who gives a shit? Right. You're happy. You have your needs met. You can do that. But I was like a like a fiend. I needed comedy and I, I couldn't – we got up there. We, we found a place and I just couldn't make it – like I'd have an 11 p.m. show in uh, at UCB in New York. And I, I found myself like I'd get drunk so I couldn't go. You ever oh, do something like that? Yeah. Because it's – the day is just so long. It used to be that you were in Brooklyn and you'd walk and you'd get a bagel and you'd go to the park or whatever it was. I just thrive in a place where you walk out of your door and stuff is happening. Mm-hmm. Now I'm just in somebody else's house and upstairs is the mom and downstairs is the son who's like 50 or something. So she's like eight, six, seventy, and downstairs is the son this and is who you his wife. From? Yeah. So we're Oreo sandwiched between a family. Right. I, I never one day we were there felt comfortable and we were there for four months. Mm-hmm. I never felt comfortable watching TV. I could hear them sneeze. I, I was just constantly on edge. Um, his poor wife was blind and had lupus and there was a lot of medical things going on. The house kind of smelled like bandages. I'm not putting these people down. I'm just saying. It sounds like you're celebrating them. uh, It wasn't a great spot. (laughs) 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 I remember, again, Jess St. Clair, Jessica St. Clair. Mm -hmm. I went out to dinner uh, or lunch with her. She was so sweet. I just needed a friend. And I was in one of those marriages where you didn't really have too many friends, Mm -hmm. not because my wife certainly didn't cut me off from people, but she, uh, we just had each other. So that was enough. Now I'm more deliberate with Val. We like, we go out, we hang out, we see friends, we try and keep, we keep those things alive. But I didn't have any close friends. So then like Jess St. Clair went out to me and went out to lunch with me. And I remember that was one of the times, I don't want to be too sad, that I cried. I was like, the house smells like bandages because everyone in it's dying. And I just started – it was like the saddest thing. And I hadn't yeah. admitted it. This is pre-podcast. Mm-hmm. This is pre-any, obviously, any way to vent and be heard. Right. So I was just a dying, quiet person. Yeah. <laughs> and my wife was very distant. I, but I wasn't seeing her very much. This is in real life, by the way. I wouldn't see her very much. And we were kind of like ships passing in the night. She'd come home. I'd be leaving – I'd be miserable. I'd come home, should be asleep. Fucking sad shit. I'd, I'd jerk off, have a bunch of scotch and like go to bed. Just because I was home alone, mm-hmm. sandwiched in the death house and so conflicted. I had never had complex feelings before where I was like, I need to get the fuck out of here. Yeah. I really thought I was dead. I really did. I thought I had died. And that I was in some sort of weird purgatory place because it felt like lost. It felt like this is a dream. Mm-hmm. I, I would lay on my bed and try to wake up. 
I, it was, I know that sounds crazy, but that's... No, that's, in, that's interesting. <laughs> it's how far off I was. Yeah. And then when she told me she was having an affair... Oh, so that's how you, she told you. That's how you found out? Eventually she told me. I, I made it three and a half months, and I was like, um, we need to go. Like, I was like, I'm sorry. Like, back then we were kids. I was 28. She was 30, I guess. And... Um, Breaking a lease seemed like a really big deal. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like you were like, you can't, you can't break a lease. They'll f- throw they us ch- away. Charge you for the whole year. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They're going to kill us yeah. if we break the lease. <laughs> um, so that seemed like a divorce in itself. I was just like, we got to break the lease. I'm sorry. I'm, <laughs> I'm dying up here. And she was like, okay. But it was like in this weird way. I, I, I just didn't feel close to her anymore. Uh. We weren't having sex anymore, really. I mean, we would occasionally, but we just like whatever we had. If it was like a beam of light, there was now there was just a piece of cardboard in between. It just mm-hmm. wasn't reaching either of us, right? So we're both lost. We're both in pain. What was her job? She was a teacher, so she uh, was having the affair that whole time. So we moved upstate. Um, in hopes of making our thing better. I, I remember when we broke up, I was like, why did we move upstate? Why did why did we do that? She was already having an affair. you knew you, right. I think it was just starting. And she was like, I don't know. I wish I hadn't. Like, I'm sorry. But why I caught Providence is it was great that we were upstate because I had, when she told me about the affair, she took me out to dinner. We drove upstate. It was fucking terrible. Yankees traffic get upstate and she had a list and she read it to me and she, you know, she says she's cheating or whatever. Wait, what was the list? I remember the way that she phrased it. She said, um, I want you to be happy. Like, I I love you and I want you to be happy. You deserve someone who really loves you. I like responded. I still had no idea where it was going. I was like, thank you. I love you too. Like, just (laughs) didn't know. I know, I know, I know, I know. It's it's heartbreaking. Uh, And then she's like, I don't want to be a cheating wife. The, The list was called things I know for sure. That's it. I, so I, dramatic. I, I know, I, but I really do sympathize with her. Yeah. This poor – I was the puppy you had to drown in the river. You know what I mean? And it's terrible, but that's, that's fucking life sometimes. Why would anyone sometimes. do that to a puppy? Because the puppy didn't light your fire. Yeah. And I'm not just talking about fucking. That's, that's the last thing I'm talking about. We, we were okay in that regard. Again, I didn't – clearly didn't know what I was doing. Uh, as well as I do now. <laughs> I just mean I've had more experience. <laughs> that was the only person I had had sex with. Yeah. But it wasn't a sexual problem. It was just like a the biggest thing I learned is you don't, and I say this as much as I can, because this is a message that I feel like a lot of people need to hear. You don't have to hate someone to break up with them. It doesn't have to be ugly. I don't have to be a drunk. I don't have to hit you. You don't have to hit me. Nobody has to throw plates. Nobody has to hate your parents. Nobody has – not one person wants kids, the other doesn't. It doesn't even have to be toxic or dysfunctional. That's right. It can just be the wrong fit. My therapist said the funniest thing. He goes, if you don't want it, you don't even have to give a reason. It can just be like, you know what? I'm going to bounce. And it's it's not unkind. I just love that he said bounce. Yeah. <laughs> I, it's not unkind. <clears throat> I'm all for working through things. Valerie and I are committed to each other. We want to get married, all that sort of stuff. So it's not like – First sign of trouble, like peace. I believe in investing in something. But once you've figured out that someone isn't your bliss and you get that, it's like the easterly winds are blowing and you're like, I think there's a better life for you Mm -hmm. and a better life for me. 
you don't, you can break up with somebody and even love them and even be like, that's why her list started with, I love you. And I, and I believe that she did. And I loved her too. And I do love her. I, I'm not just saying that to be a good guy. I have, I love her. I also have other feelings as well. Like <laughs> right. I'm still human. I can be like, hey, that still hurt my feelings. But I understand. So she tells me and then she said, I don't want to be a cheating wife. And I go, so don't be. <laughs> that's what I said. Then she was real quiet. And then, and then uh, I was like, is this somebody else? And then I asked if it was a comedian. And uh, she said no. <laughs> but I was like, clearly, you, comedians are the most interesting people in the world. You have to be with another comedian. It wasn't a comedian. And then uh, the reason why – this is the long way to say – the reason why it was good that we had moved upstate was because when she told me, I was actually 80% shocked. might have even been 70% shocked. 30% relieved. Oh, that's so I was interesting. Like, oh, I thought I died. Like, I never told her that, but I was like, I've been praying to God to wake me up from this demon dimension because you, the person who used to look at me and see me, hasn't looked at me. You know what I mean? You've been gone. You've been elsewhere. And I didn't understand. Like, suddenly it makes sense why you felt Ah, that way. Yes. Oh, of course. Of course you cried while we were having sex the last time because you're in love with someone else. Mm. And I hate it here. Thank the living Christ that I had something to hate because I wanted to be with her, I think. I thought I did. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Because that that's definitely not the decision I wanted to make. But I wanted to get the fuck out of there. So mm-hmm. I got – it was this terrible way out. I know this is a weird analogy, but I thought of it like in the moment. There was a type of torture in the medieval ages. It's so gross. They put a cage on you with rats in it. I'm not even going to explain that. No, and then they like shine a light or something? Well, they heat up the cage Ugh. and the rats – burrow into I didn't know that's true. I don't know if that's true. But I felt like one of those rats. I was like, I don't want to burrow into this guy. I like this guy. (laughs) No, I'm just saying, it's gross, but it's my only way out. Mm -hmm. I was like, at least I'm not in that burning hot cage. So now you've seen the show. None of that's in the show. It's it's a different different, story. Yeah, different dynamic. But, you know, that's that's the real that's the real story. And then and then, you know, you call Nick you call Mulaney. And then all of these friends, TJ Miller, who mm-hmm. is on the show, again, we don't tell the the actual literal story, but like these friends, these guys, these drug doing, I, I don't mean like hard drugs. I mean like pot smoking, late night drinking, uh, anonymous sex having. I don't mean like whoring it up. I just mean from my Christian early perspective, I was like, these people are philanderers. You know what I mean? <laughs> they weren't school kids. Yeah. They weren't ch- church boys. They took me in. Suddenly, TJ's like, come with me to this movie shoot and I'll hang out with you every night and we'll hang out. And and that And that was kind of... You know, many years later, I was like, that seems like a show to me. That's so sweet. Yeah. It's like they really took you under their wing. That's what it is. So here are these people that we know in a certain way. And Artie, by the way, he didn't literally take me in. But I have no doubt that Artie, seeing a person, the way it happens in the show is he sees me do stand-up and I'm talking about Mm -hmm. my wife leaving. And he has sympathy for me. But – but he I, doesn't think it's real. He just thinks it's a terrible set. Yeah, yeah. He also doesn't believe it's real. Yeah, but you know, I I know these guys. Comedians really are, and I don't say this to exclude other people. It's more to celebrate the beauty of the camaraderie of comedians. They really are like a species. Mm-hmm. And 
if somebody comes up to me and they want to talk, I wish I could give them my full love and attention just because they're another person. But when they mention that they're a stand-up as well, there's just this like, oh, how many tours have you done? <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm. It's almost like being in the army or something. And and you and you care about them. And that's that's one of the reasons I do my podcast is there's so much advice for young stand-ups is I was like, because I care about feeding my people. <laughs> you know what right. I mean? I want them to do well. I want them to avoid pain. I want all of us to avoid pain. But with comedians, I can help a little bit more. In the pilot, someone suggests that you quit. Yeah. Did that ever happen to you? Yes. Uh, not as directly as in the pilot, but there were nefarious types. The, the The show is also this exploration. The scene in New York has changed a little bit. When I was coming up in New York, it felt a little bit harsher. Of course, that could just be projection and perception. Mm-hmm. It just seemed like everyone was an Atlas-sized giant, and they were all <laughs> terrifying. There certainly – there seemed to be more ball-breaking back then, and there would be people that would be like, you don't – I mean, you don't really have it. You got to get out of here. And they might be joking. They might not. But then there were the guys that like – we're not kidding. I was just talking about a guy who used to fuck with the young comedian so hard. And someone was like, why are you such a dick? And he's like, if they quit, it's one less person in my way. That's what, that's the guy's response. Uh, he died. <laughs> Would I know who this was? What's that? Would I know who this guy was? I don't was? think so. I, it feels, somebody just called me on this. It's like, I feel bad because he's dead. If he right. wasn't dead, I'd be like, his name was Todd Lim. He was a funny guy. He was not nice to the young guys. It might have been an act. He might have had a heart of gold. I'd like to think he did. But, (laughs) you know, there was no evidence for it. Right. (laughs) So that sort of stuff would happen. But with the show, one of the reasons why I think people who don't even – most people don't do comedy. Most people don't want to do comedy can relate uh, to to crashing is because it's a field that doesn't need you. Comedy does not need you. Mm -hmm. So there was never any doubt that we would film the show in New York because New York is a good metaphor for comedy. It does not (laughs) need you. You So true. You show up in New York, you drop your bags and you're like, I'm here. And the cab should just drive by and splash feces on your face (laughs) because it will do fine without you. You leave, it continues. You quit comedy, it continues. It's like – there's almost something – there's almost penance to be paid. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of one of the things the show is about too. It's like people will tell you to quit. You're going to bomb. And that's one of the more exciting things about the show is that I've never seen a show about a new comedian. I've never seen a show about a comedian that's not good yet. Right. Seinfeld is just kind of a device. I love Seinfeld. I'm not saying any – I love Louie as well. Uh, but these shows aren't about what it's like starting in comedy. And to me, the origin story is the whole thing. I want to know what it's like when you stink and you have to fight for it. You have to beg for it. You have to beg for the privilege to stink. Can I please perform at this club? I'll do whatever it takes. And then you go up and you're not even good at it. (laughs) It's the worst. You have to sign up for some open mic and then you go up and eat shit. And you have to thank them for the opportunity. It's like that for five years. How did you and Judd start working together? Apatow. Um. What happened was the Pete Holmes show – am I talking too much, by the way? Am I no. not throwing to you enough? Because I yammer. You are talking – that this p- – talk all you want. But we ping and we pong. I know, but I like – right I, now I'm just – I'm pinging a pong on I my like, own ping. I like what's happening. <laughs> I like it. I like it a lot. So okay. Uh, as yeah. long as you're okay. I'm, I'm loving it. Please feel free to interrupt. I will. 
<laughs> I, I, I know I you do. Been. It's your show. Yeah, yeah you have it. I just, I worry about that on my own podcast. I hate when I go to bed that night and I'm like, shit, I talk too fucking much. Sometimes people tweet at me. They're like, you talk too much. I'm like, I agree. I need <laughs> help. Like, I'm working on it. Like, but, but when anyway. you're a guest on someone else's show, that's when you should and can do Buddy, it. I agree. I call them days off. You have a guest <laughs> on your podcast and they talk. I'm I, Seth Rogen, huge get for me, did the podcast, did all the talking. And I was <laughs> like, this is fucking a dream. Especially with the bigger guests. Uh-huh. You're worried they're going to be like, shut the fuck up. I want to hear Seth's story. I did. It happened. We have it. It's Congrats. great. Congrats. Oh, it was awesome. He was great. <laughs> I can't believe, I'm still kind of can't believe he did it. Um, but what was I saying? Oh, how you and Judd started working together. So the Pete Holmes show, which was a talk show that I had done, um, I still remember when we did that live show, and you're like, "They, they, I want to do a talk show." They told me there's no talk shows. It broke my heart. Remember? I I remember it well. So yeah. that was not the most recent time. It was at but, the meltdown. Yeah, right before that, I had we did a live show at the meltdown. You were my guest. Yeah. Um, and you said that you had this talk show in the works, and yeah. I had just had this soul crushing. I know meeting with a production. I company could tell it was such a L.A. moment where this guy that I was meeting with. I went on so many generals, and I look back, and I'm like, I, "Those I don't know what they were practiced for, but they were all kind of pointless because I didn't. It was too early for me to be meeting with production companies because I didn't really have a show concept yet. Like I wasn't pitching, right. but it would have been better if I had something to pitch. But I think he was like, so we're we're both sitting there, kind of like, what? I feel like all those meetings there was a lot of like, why are we both here? And yeah. it's like because my agent set it up. I don't know. Yep, but. You know, I think he's, I don't know if he asked, but I, I think I said, you know, my, I really want to have my own talk show. Yeah. And he's like, they don't give anyone talk shows anymore. Jenny McCarthy can't even <laughs> get a talk show. Uh, but like, meaning, unless you're a household name, you're not going to get a talk show. And even household names don't get talk shows. I remember and you then, said that. yeah. And yeah. then you're like, yeah, Conan is developing a talk show for yeah. me. You know, I was happy for you. Of course. But sad. I didn't think you were not happy for me. But I just remember that as being like a, what a strange enigma show business is. Yeah. And you know what else your story makes me think of is I, I've been on so many generals as well, these meetings that are just kind of just to, cha- chats. You just chat. Yeah, but there's this expectation that no one – and you don't know what it is. That's the thing that kills me about those is that I think they're, you're supposed yeah. to go in and dazzle them with you. Right. But I didn't – I don't think I understood that. You go in – oh, yeah, that's interesting. You go in – it's like a date, but no one's going to fuck anybody. Right. Or you go in with a plate on a tray and they have a buffet, but you leave and you have no food on your on your plate. <laughs> yeah. You're just like, imagine, imagine <laughs> if I started scooping this on my plate. Right. And they're like, that would be crazy. Maybe in five years. I will say that getting a show feels exactly like a bunch of generals. Like I'm telling you this. I remember meeting with Nick Bernstein. We had lunch. He's the guy who eventually executive produced my show. Or I don't know. I think he was an EP. He sure did everything. <laughs> um, so he executively produced, in my opinion. Um, we met and I was just like, it was just another one of those meetings where he was like, well, I, you know, I think you're great. I've been trying to do a talk show for 10 years and I've been knocking on Conan's door. Now they're finally looking for one. And I think you'd be the great host. And we're talking. And I'm like, yeah, great. I left and I was like, all right. 
I just, I just <laughs> went home and ate a sandwich. You know what I mean? There was I wasn't like I got it because I've had so many meetings, right? Where they're like, oh, a, a movie with you would be cool, and you just like, all right, dip shit, and you leave. <laughs> yeah, you jerk off and you go to bed. It, like nothing happens. So you get to the point where you're desensitized. So you had this meeting where like it, if it had been my first meeting in L.A., it would have been like La La Land. I would mm-hmm. have sung a song in Griffith Park. But I just kind of went home. And, and then I had a meeting with Conan. And that went fine. But it was just general. All I remember about it was that I – the first thing I said was, should I sit here? I, I, I don't want to fuck up your shit. <laughs> and I was like, why did I say fuck up your shit? <laughs> and then he goes, you can sit there. You won't fuck up my shit. And I was like, ha We're in. <laughs> He also said it. We're both we're both culpable <laughs> in case the NSA is listening. But you they knew of you cuz you had done Conan's show. The the way that I'll tell it as an old man to my grandchildren, <laughs> which I can't wait. That's going to be the best. So little's expected of you. It's okay that you're horny, all these things. <laughs> I want to sit in an old old Wait, literature. wait, wait. It's okay that you're horny when you're a grandfather talking to your grandchildren? Not in that situation. But <laughs> okay. I'm just talking about like, yeah, that was confusing. I just mean like old men kind of oh, get a gotcha. pass. Yeah, that's They can true. sit around. They can be who Randy, they are. Yeah. yeah. It's okay if you're like, Christy Tarlington or whatever it is. <laughs> right. Like nobody's like, they don't spray you with a water bottle. <laughs> um, but when, I'm talking, when, when yeah. I'm talking to my grandchildren, I will tell them that I did um, Conan the first time and – uh, stand up and did very very well. I didn't even realize that I had done what I would now consider very well. And then afterwards, Conan, because you think well, you hear these stories. Ralphie made it. The Tonight Show gets a standing ovation. That didn't happen. Mm-hmm. And you certainly don't crush. Nobody really crushes on a late night show. You can kind of, but so I did as close as you can pretty much get. But more more importantly, both of my Conan sets, I did jokes that were inclusive. That's what it was. And I also – I went through a bad breakup. I don't know if this had anything to do with it, but I started taking better care of myself. If you watch my first Conan, I'm like 275, 280, like the biggest I've ever been. Mm-hmm. I'm essentially wearing a smock. <laughs> and then the second one, you can just tell. Like I did a juice thing. I just started eating fuck tons of plants and stuff. You can just tell I'm like radiating health. Yeah. Like I just look like as healthy, healthier than I am now by far. And I just went out and I was just like kind of walked out. And somebody was like, when you walked out on your second set – that's why they gave you a show. You just kind of walked out like it was your show. Right. Uh, these, these are other people's words. I don't mean to butter my own bread. But I did that bit about magic. And I think I'm the first comedian in history to do a bit about how I love magic instead of being like, these fucking liars with the doves and you're calling me an asshole. You know what I mean? Or being threatened by it. And like, so I did these two positive sets. And that's what I think Conan noticed. And then J.P. Buck, who I remain incredibly grateful for, J.P. is like in the special thanks in my special and he'll always be in every special thanks, is because he's the one that put the list together. Conan was like, you know, I want to settle in at TBS more. One good way to do that is to put somebody, uh, you know, behind me. Like, let's build a franchise. Mm -hmm. So they put a list together and I was – I, I still kind of can't believe it. I was the top of the list. And then, then I meet with Conan. It's just a general. I just say, I don't want to fuck up your shit. But then we just talked about Boston. We talked about being tall. <laughs> whatever, <laughs> whatever we talked about. It was very casual. It's another one of those nothing happened. But Conan said, he goes, uh, I don't know what it is about you, but when I'm near you, my – my comedy tuning fork like vibrates like it. it oh, what a great of, compliment! I agree. So I drew on my parking pass for Warner Brothers. I drew a tuning fork 
with a Sharpie and I put it on my wall. And that was it. I literally – I'm not trying to be like, oh, how humble and uh-huh. unassuming. I'm telling you – No, yeah, you I'm not getting that at because all. Because you are uh, – <laughs> that's so funny. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No, what a good joke. But I'm telling you the way that you feel where you're like – and you had a, a general – it was with Conan. It was awesome. What a thrill. But you didn't go home and go, I'm getting a talk right. show. I think that a key difference – and granted, we have very different careers – my generals were with people who were basically unfamiliar with me other than they'd Googled probably. Yeah. And I think that they were not – they were too low to be in the position. They didn't have the power to actually create anything. No, we went on the same generals. Okay. We went on the yeah. – these, these were the breakout generals. Right. These were, these were special generals. These were outliers. Yeah. But they felt exactly the I same. I see what you're saying. Yeah. Except you were like – well, this is a decision. Ma- I hate that term, but this is a decision maker. This right. Is a, get this me is in a, a room with a decision keeper. maker. <laughs> yeah. But you still left in LA, for better or worse, had taught me that nothing ever happens. No. Yo, that, is the le- that is the lesson to be learned in this town, I think. Yeah. Well, there's. there's uh, a, no, that's, that's not true. I understand. There's a healthy way to surrender. Not, I don't mean give up. I mean surrender to like the things you can't control. And you're just kind of like, all right, this town has a tendency. Who said it? it's the only town where you can die of encouragement? <laughs> it's true. So it wasn't that I was callous or jaded or even bitter, but I didn't expect anything to happen. The next meeting we had was me, Conan, and Nick, and my manager, and Conan and his uh, producer, Jeff Ross, not the comedian, his producer. And uh, Conan sitting to my right, and he's like, well, we want to go to TBS and say we've been looking for a guy and that we found him. And I literally was like, who is it? <laughs> I didn't say that, but yeah. I was just kind of like I, – I told the story later on Conan that I was just sitting there acting normal. But inside it was like midnight at Disneyland. There was just <laughs> fireworks and Tinkerbell <laughs> flying around because I was so excited but also just like, wait, that's how – talk about stories, telling stories. This isn't a great story. It is. It's fun to hear the truth. Mm -hmm. But the reason why movies have those moments where I'm in some tiki bar and I just got dumped and then I get a call from a manager and he's like, Conan O'Brien wants to make a show with you. There's a reason we tell that because that's how it feels. Right. The truth is I'm on a a couch on the Warner Brothers lot and it's kind of said nonchalantly. That's also interesting. But you're going to have to push in on me and play like, wouldn't it be nice? If, you know what I mean? You're yeah. going to have to find another way to convey the emotion because the plot doesn't necessarily do it justice. Right. Anyway, I didn't expect to tell that story. I love talking about it. That show went for a glorious 80 episodes. Sometimes people go like, why do you think your show failed? <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> like I, di- I didn't actually. I don't. I know. Am I supposed to? <laughs> But I don't see it as a failure at all. I look back on it so fondly. I learned so much. And I clear, I really had a lot of fun. Like when I, when it used to be on YouTube, we're trying to get it back on some platform. Uh, but when it was on YouTube, I would watch it occasionally, mm-hmm. usually while high. And I was like, this is funny to me. And that's, that's success. That's, yeah. You know, you go like, I don't give a shit. We didn't compromise. We didn't turn it into a can of Pepsi. Maybe we... Couldn't have, even if we tried. We just made the show that really was the Pete Holmes show. This is what my interests are. These are who my friends are. These are the jokes that I like. And I could watch it 
And because we did so many of them, I actually forgot the punchlines. So I'd be like, this guy's funny. I like like this guy. It felt like another person. So we did 80 episodes of that. And we taped them. By the end, we were doing nine episodes a week. And uh, that was a lot. Wow. And it was because we only had the stage. There are all these cues that the network didn't really give too much Mm. of a shit about us. I'm so grateful to them. But you get these little – you smell a little shit in the air. (laughs) And you're like, oh, they're only letting us use the stage for like three weeks. So we have to tape all the episodes in three weeks. And like the second you finish, they start tearing it down and building, you know, Big Bang Theory sets or whatever. Uh, no offense to that show. Why am I so sensitive? Big Bang Theory sets. They're huge fans of this podcast. So ah! good, good that you said that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to offend Johnny Galecki. Yep. No. Thank I you. actually met him. He's a sweet guy. Anyway. We did the show, show ends, show's canceled, but because we taped so many in advance, it was still going to air for like three months. <laughs> so I was in this weird place where we're not going to announce that it's canceled for three months, but I know that it's canceled. And then like again in the movies, you find out your show died. You go out and drink or something. Like I'm right. supposed to go – Have a reaction. I'm supposed to go to Ye Rustic Inn and tell the bartender <laughs> while I'm impossibly smoking inside. And <laughs> the scene ends when I'm kicked out or whatever. <laughs> like you can't smoke in here. And I'm like, oh, I used to have a talk show. It wasn't that. Like we <laughs> we were in such a clean creative space. You know what I mean? When you're making a lot of shows and, and you just feel that flow, it's almost like being in good physical shape. Mm. You're just kind of like, I, I, can, I can still run and I can I could think clearly, what is my idea? What is the, the big idea? It's not my only idea, but what is... Like what's the next thing? Is that what you mean? What I mean is you're going to die and what would you like to do? <laughs> not just what could you do. Right. We could uh, – we got an offer to continue to do the sketch show on like another uh, smaller network or whatever. We could have done that. We could have – so the story is like the first thing we do is we're like, well, let's just – one of our favorite things we did on the show was uh, the sketches. We were like, let's pitch a sketch show to Comedy Central. I love Comedy Central. They're not the butt of the story. But we went in and in the small talk before the pitch – they were like, well, one thing's for sure. We don't want another sketch show. Oh. <laughs> like, it was it was like an episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm. Me and my like my partner, Oren, are sitting there and we're just like, oh, shit. So we <laughs> turned a pitch into a general. <laughs> like we were the ones that were like, well, we don't really have any ideas right now, but we just wanted to check in. Yeah. And we didn't pitch them anything. And that's when I got in my car and we were, I was going to drive home. One of the things I love about LA is all the time in your car. I know that sounds crazy. I think it's really good for creativity. It's some of the best ideas I've ever had or when I'm driving. And when we're writing Crashing, it takes me about an hour and a half to get to Jed's office every day. Mm-hmm. So I'm in the car for three hours. Invaluable. Like I should be able to write off – maybe you can write off gas. But that's like my office. I think office. you can. I think you can too. Uh, we should look into that. But really, really getting good ideas. And so I get in my car and it was very frustrating because I didn't have – anywhere to go. I didn't have any prospects, anything to do. And I was like, maybe that in that frustration, I was like, what's the idea? And the idea was, well, Pete, you're a religious guy from a kind of strange family who married the first girl he ever loved when he was 22. And, uh, and then she left you. And then, and then comedy kind of saved you. And then in that moment, I was like, well, that's what's been missing is the engine of the show, which is 
ah, it just kind of hit me like a, whatever, like a revelation. I was like, every episode's a different comedian. I was like, you stay on a different couch. You call it crashing. Like it just kind of like came into my mind. This was a Wednesday, maybe a Tuesday. And uh, I was just like, this is a heartfelt coming of age story about comedy. I was like, I got to pitch it to Judd. This is where. Did you know him yet? He had done uh, my live podcast and he had done a segment on my talk show. Mm -hmm. So we had literally hung out twice or done two things together. And that's that was Dave Rath, my manager, knows Judd. So that was one of those things. It's so funny. I I, I like to tease my manager, and he's he, just because we we're friends too. So we kind of tease each other. And then I was like, but he really did come through with that Judd thing. <laughs> like he really was like, oh, I think I can get Judd on your podcast. That's why I'm like, that's why you make ten percent. You did ten percent. You right. got Judd to come to the podcast. I did ninety percent. That's why I make ninety percent because I did a good job on that podcast. It was me, Kumail, Chris Gethard, and Todd Berry. Um, Kumail just did a movie produced by Judd. Chris Gethard is doing a one man show off Broadway um, called Career Suicide. That's going to be an HBO special produced oh, by Judd. Wow! And I'm doing a TV show with Judd. Uh, Todd Berry remains amazing, but he kind of doesn't make the story perfect. Be <laughs> like, and Todd is currently doing whatever. Todd is currently <laughs> continuing to be an amazing, great comedian. But it was the most productive podcast in right. podcast history. So I was like, could we pitch him this idea? And he was filming Trainwreck at the time. And I think it was a Wednesday, and I flew on Thursday to New York uh, to come back Friday because they were like, he's free. He can give you 15 minutes. Talk about a grandfather oh, story. Geez. <laughs> He'll give you 15 minutes at like 6 a.m. on Friday in, <laughs> in New York. And I was like, God, this sounds like a story. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> you know that feeling? You're like, oh, shit. I feel like I'm in a, a short story right yeah, now. Yeah, like you have to go now. It was so romantic. I don't mean obviously sexually romantic. Right. It was like, this is a romantic story. This is an amazing story, a classic story. And I bought the ticket. I flew out. Of course, I'm just thinking about the pitch. Went to the thing. We talked. Did you for, go alone? I did go alone. We talked for 14 minutes. <laughs> In the 15th minute, I tell him the show idea. He likes it. Again, it's not like a backflip, firm handshake. My word is strong as oak, Jerry Maguire kind of thing. Right. It's like he goes, I like it. Let's keep talking about it. And he goes, do me – the first thing he had me do was write – a purge document, right? Everything you remember about getting divorced and getting into the comedy scene, just freestyle, free association, 10 raw pages. And these were raw pages. I was writing about how like I lost my erection while masturbating, like real depression mm -hmm. <laughs> stories. Just like really, you're almost embarrassed to be sharing it with Jed. And there's, I even wrote little footnotes to him. I'm like, I can't believe I'm telling you this, but like, uh, I told my wife when she left me, if you get a dog, maybe name him Pete. Like real sad, <laughs> sad shit. But I was like, dude, if you want me to bleed on the page, I'm a positive, baby. I'm like, here you go. <laughs> right. And he asked for it and I gave it to him the next day. In my opinion, obviously. You know what I mean? And then he was like, this is good. I don't. I honestly don't even know if he read it because he's a good mentor figure. Mm -hmm. It's not really about him reading it as much as it's about me doing it. Then he was like, write a pilot. And then I wrote the pilot in a couple days. Had you done – had you written pilots before? I had written for two oh, right. bad TV – I don't say bad. Badly received. 
I thought they were good shows. Mm. And I loved everybody that worked on them. But I worked on two badly received shows, Outsourced and I Hate My Teenage Daughter. So I had written um, a spec. I wrote a Modern Family spec that got me both of those jobs. And then I had written an Outsourced and I had written a Teenage Daughter. But of course, those are written collectively. Mm -hmm. I had written drafts. Um, So I didn't – I wasn't even – but when it's you and when it's your voice – and you don't have to check with anybody. Like, is this what this character said? Like, you're just like, I know this character. I know what my fucking dad sounds like. You know, you can do it quickly. It's mm-hmm. like, oh. And and you know that good feeling when you're like, this is in me. And it wants to come out. That's why it was so easy. Not easy. But that's why it was so fast to write. Right. And at this point, I'm I'm playing the impressed Judd game. I like dads. I like father figures. I like showing him how far I can throw the football, comedically <laughs> speaking. So I get it to him quickly. He reads it. He gives notes. I get it. I do it quickly. I do it quickly. I do it quickly. And from watching Jed work with other people, that kind of has – it has a lot to do with it. Like there, it has a – you want at every opportunity to show them that you're that you're serious. Mm-hmm. I know that sounds crazy to maybe somebody listening. It's like, of course, if I had that opportunity. But things no, get in the way. I – Look back at <clears throat> so many, actually not not showbiz jobs, but like magazine jobs, mm. where I would be called in, and I I was so young that I had this attitude of like, this is yours to lose, so just play it super cool, yeah. and then I wouldn't get the job, yeah. And it's like, no, that's actually that's absolutely not at all how I should have played it yeah. because now being on the other side of things, it's like the thing that makes you want to hire someone is their enthusiasm for wanting to work with you or for you or whatever. Like I know for example, it's not my story to tell, but I I think it's known that Schumer did Stern. Right. Yes. And that's how, yeah. I like what you were talking about on Stern. And then I believe she wrote a draft of Trainwreck in a week, which is just kind of insane. But like, Here's here's what's more interesting. I don't think it's that interesting that some people that get things made got them made because opportunity knocked and they answered the door. What's more interesting to me, and I've done this, is opportunities knocked and you've been afraid. Mm-hmm. You, It's so easy. Again, it's not as obvious as it seems to be like, of course I did it. And then I did it. I'm talking about writing a document where you're like, please name your dog Pete to remember me. Not easy work. So no, there I'm are impressed other with stories the speed that, at which you did this. I appreciate that, but there's what I'm to make it more relatable. There are other times where I've been like, "This is the moment you're supposed to shine," and I've chosen to not, not do it because nobody's there all the time. Right the the alignment of your ability and your mental state, your emotional state, and to be honest, just like your sharpness. This is why it's important to always. You know, do your craft and do stand up in my case, even though there's no real, nobody's telling you to do stand up. Mm. You do it to stay sharp so that you can hope that when the opportunity comes, now I sound like my dad, you'll be <laughs> ready. But it's true because sometimes the opportunity comes and I haven't been ready. Right. This was a good thing. And then Jed and I, like, we love the same shows. I was just telling Val, <laughs> I was like, that never happens. It never happens. Part of my pitch was I was like, Jed, I'm not bringing this to you because you can make it happen. I'm coming to, to to you with this because this is the story. These are the types of stories you seem to like to tell, and I, re- I uh, your work resonates with me, 
And I think this is a good thing that we could do together. Um, and we both are obsessed with Mad Men. We both love the movie Assassination of Jesse James. Who loves that movie? Nobody. <laughs> so I'd finally, I'd watched so many people. Like I remember Aziz uh, talking to the founder of College Humor, Ricky Van Veen. And I wanted Ricky to like me so badly. We're still friends. And he and Aziz were just talking about how they have the exact same taste. And you just like that type, that specific type of jealousy where you're like, I don't even know who the yeah, yeah, yeah is a whore. You know what I mean? <laughs> you're just like, you feel like such a, the kid at the dance that nobody right. wants. And finally you're like, it just so happens that Judd and I had, like we didn't argue once with the show. We were like, and it's, oh, that's perfect. Oh, this is good. I like, he, he would, uh, I don't want to say decline or deny some of my ideas, but he would sometimes move them in other directions or be like, I'd be like, I really like this idea. He's like, I think that might make you look creepy. And I'm like, oh, you're right. And so it was a, it was a good partnership and it remains a good partner. I, I hope we get to continue being a good partner. What did you want to do that made you look creepy? I wanted to tell a story about, oh, it's, it is creepy. It's too creepy. I guess I was going to do it on the show. That I, uh, that I stay, uh, <laughs> it was about jerking off at my friend's house <laughs> and it was, and I, it just was like this time when you were so sad and I saw him with his wife and they seemed so happy that you'd go to the bathroom just to try and do anything to make you feel happy. And it didn't literally happen like that, but there were these feelings and these surges of urges that I was like, what if I wrote it like it happened and it was, and I get caught and he's mad at me and jerking off in his house and his wife is using, using the bathroom and it's like, and I get kicked out and he's like, I think that might be something they, maybe they do on a darker episode of Louie. I don't know if that's (laughs) what we're going to do. Season one of this show. Stuff like that. Right. So he well, was, that makes sense. He protected me. He yeah. Was, he was good. He was very good like that. All right. So let's take some questions from listeners. But first, I want to say, if you're going to buy something on Amazon, which you are because they have everything, click through the banner on my website, alisonrosen.com. It doesn't cost you anything extra, but it helps out the show. So thank you guys so much for your Amazon support. Also, I am on Patreon. Patreon is like Kickstarter. Um, but you can support artists and podcasts on an ongoing monthly basis. And there's different reward levels. So you can get extra bonus episodes every month. There's an exclusive video live stream. There's a level where you <clears throat> excuse me, get merchandise um, in the mail. And for more info on that, go to patreon.com slash Allison Rosen. Okay, let's take questions from listeners. When we ask, they send them in. They're wondering how you have been. So thanks so much for answering these questions from our fans. Okay. Brow Advisor says... What's the greatest lesson you've learned about interviewing? You two are my favorites. Oh, God, that's a good one. I think it's trying to create a space. It's so funny because this has been like a monologue. (laughs) (laughs) You're trying to create a space where the guest feels, uh, and this sounds artificial, but it is authentic, where they feel safe and they feel seen and appreciated. Mm Mm-hmm. So a lot of my best interviews, um, like I just did one with Billy Wayne Davis that'll be out in a couple weeks. And you can just tell it starts with me being authentically and wholeheartedly enthusiastic that I had just listened to his album and I loved it and I wanted to talk about it. And 
like was there with him and was excited. And that was right from the offset. It's like starting off on the right foot. But then obviously, and I got this certainly partially from Marin, uh, is that if you, if they're not really opening up, you open up. Mm -hmm. And even if they are opening up, you open up even more to show them that it's okay. And I've had therapists write in, uh, to me and be like, it's funny that something I say on the podcast all the time, which is you're in a safe space. He's like, that's a therapy thing. Just saying it does kind of make it true. You're saying, like when I say, do you believe in God or whatever? I like to say, and I'm not putting you on the spot. I'm here with you. Right. Let's talk about it. Um, that's just that sort of treehouse sleepover vibe that I think you can manufacture with language. Um, and then you show them whatever, however far they're willing to go, you'll go there with them. And if they're not there, okay, I'll be the guinea pig. So there's almost a competitive aspect to it with some guests that work where it's like, if you're not going to talk, I'm going to talk. Mm-hmm. So please talk. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Do you, let me ask you this. It's a bad interview if, if I ask a question. That's how, that's something else I've learned. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Where if I go like, what do you think about that? I'm like, why aren't, why aren't you just talking? To me? Right. Well, like, I know women remember, are good at that. You know, like they talk. <laughs> I know that you have said that your podcast is a conversation, not an interview. Right. For sure. I think I told you that was pretentious. <laughs> ah, it is. Um, Some things are, and they're true. So, <laughs> they just are pretentious. <laughs> let me ask you this. So, because I have a journalism background, um, when I would do when I was interviewing people for print journalism stories, the thing always for me, and I, this was not drummed into me. I did not learn this. It was just, just like a thing in me was I got to get them to open up a thousand percent and whatever they don't want to say, I want them to say, and I will use, I mean, it makes me sound like an asshole, but yeah, like no, I, I did it. I didn't, it wasn't articulate. I just remember in an interview, like I, Someone didn't want to say something and I knew it was something painful. So I told a story wherein I cried and then she told me her story. Yeah. But like I was, it was completely manipulative of me, but it felt genuine at the time. But I just, I used, like I was always very good at getting people to open up. And in a way though, that wasn't necessary for 700 words about your band. It was just like a personal thing. It was like, I can't stand people saying no to me. I need them to be completely completely open. Mm -hmm. As a podcaster, I have learned to rein that in. I want to create a safe space, but I also don't want the person to walk away being like, I said more than I want and I feel... Un, I feel icky about right. it. Well, that's funny too. I always go, we can edit it out. Yeah. It's, it's way better to answer the question and see how it feels and we'll take it out. And it's almost always you have two weeks, three weeks before mm-hmm. it comes out. So it's like, I, I, we have done that before too, where it's like, Hey, the way that I talked about my wife in that episode, I don't like that. Can you take that? Absolutely. We take it out. Like, and I don't even go like, cause I, I know that feeling of waking up at four in the morning and being like, shit, I shouldn't have said that. Right. But, um, but do you ever, when you're interviewing people, do you just want them to like, let it all out or are you ever sort of aware that they're going back and forth about whether they want to and do you try to protect them from themselves? Yeah. Yes. Sometimes this is why going back to Ryan Gosling, people are like, who are your dream guests? My dream guests actually oftentimes like Billy Wayne Davis, he is not uh, famous. I, I don't, I'm not putting him down. He's pre famous. I think he will be a big deal. Um, he certainly has some fans, but that's a great interview because he has nothing to protect mm-hmm. the times that I have spoken just in life. 
or on the podcast with a big celebrity, sometimes it's even harder because you're like, oh, you employ hundreds of people. Hundreds of people will lose their job. Like that was something I learned from watching Conan was like, if he fucks up, a thousand people lose their jobs. Right. So it might be harder to get someone like that to confess that they wanted to jerk off in their friend's house. You know what <laughs> I mean? That's why I'm trying to set the precedent that it's like, no, I'm a truth-telling person. That's, that's, right. that's something that I never want to lose. It's a great Avett Brothers song where they say they're here to do their thing, but if it compromises truth, then we're out of here. Like truth is way better than playing music. Um, and I feel that way about life. But uh, what did you say that made me think of something? Protecting them from themselves. There's something. Reigning in the impulse to like make someone completely spill their guts. I like saying, again, it's about complete transparency. I go like, this isn't a salacious podcast. I'm not trying to get gossip out of you. And I'm not trying to get some sort of scoop where you come out as gay on my show. And what are ratings? Not that, uh, of course, I'm alluding to Todd Glass on Marin's. That was organic and beautiful. I don't think Mark was vibe vying for that and i'm not vying for it either i want them to leave and sometimes when i pitch it to people i'm like we're building a table we're not it's not even a conversation i'll go even more pretentious (laughs) we're crafting something together and when i ask them about it in an email or whatever i always say i want you to leave and be proud of it and Mm -hmm. feel good that it exists and when you look at somebody like gary shandling who did it and was so beautiful, and then of course he passed away a few weeks later, you start to understand the urgency and the preciousness of capturing excuse me, capturing a person in their true essence. Mm-hmm. And so it's not about promoting their show or their movie that'll come and go. It's about imagine if we had recordings of Mark Twain, like in long form interviews or whoever, Harriet Tubman. Imagine if you mm-hmm. could. So we're trying to Get people out of the mindset of I'm here to promote this and get fans and get Twitter followers or whatever it is. Let's build a table and then we'll have that table until the internet crashes and it disappears. <laughs> <laughs> um, so are you ever bummed when people want stuff edited out though? I get bummed when people uh, just aren't willing to play. They don't, they don't want to do the – Keep it crispy. <laughs> ah, some people don't do the keep it crispy. Um, that's happened a couple times, but they don't want to open up, and that can make me feel maybe like how you felt writing the band pieces, where I'm like, it's like the name of your show. The great ones are where we leave and we go. We feel not to be overly dramatic, but you feel a soul connection, and you're like, we could be friends. Mm-hmm. And that happened. Like Ben Folds was a great episode, and five minutes in, we were just like, oh. Me and Ben, I didn't know that me and Ben Folds were like similar people. Right. We don't hang out. uh, And that's just because life goes that way. Like we both were like, let's hang out. I don't take it personally. I think he's great. Um, And that happens a lot. And now I take that when I come home and Val asks how the podcast was, it's either we became friends and I mean like blood brother mm-hmm. friends right like i want to text this person a lot <laughs> exactly i'm invested in their story or i go this is my code for it wasn't my favorite i go people will like it like the fans will <laughs> like it, and they do there are episodes where i'm like i just couldn't find them and they're like that is the best you made it weird i've ever heard and that's an important lesson is you're like my own personal gratification right or validation right, right. isn't really a concern for the for the audience. I say to Val, I'm like, I like ones where they're brilliant and I'm brilliant. You know what I mean? Like I want us both to shine. 
And the ones where I'm not brilliant, but they're brilliant, that's fine. The ones where I'm brilliant and they're not brilliant, that's more of a problem. Mm-hmm. And that, and that's where I get the tweets where it's like, talk less. And I'm like, you don't understand. I would like it's to a talk tactic. less. Yeah. I would like to talk less. I'm trying to get them to open up. And some people are just like, they're cool, man. They're zen. And they're like, look, if you want to flap your gums, that's fine. I'll be over here just whatever, baking my own bread mm-hmm. and looking at the swallows. <laughs> I have had it happen not often, but with guests where I'm trying to get something, I'm trying to get them to tell a story. So I will tell a story from my own life that yeah. I think is similar. Yeah. And then they'll just start asking me questions about my own story. And I'm like, yeah. oh, I needed to. And then I go. Well, I just go, don't interview me. <laughs> well, then I think, <laughs> oh, they are not getting what I'm doing. Why am I being indirect? I should just say, tell me about this. Yeah, I, I hear that. But you know what's funny? This is what I was I'm not building you. a table, though. <laughs> well, this is a nice table. Well, thank you. When maybe I, maybe when I, I am. When I die, people will listen to this and be like, that's what Pete was like. That, that's fine. All right. That's nice. I need, I'm glad I need this my table exists. own version of – if you're building a table, what am I building? Like a bouncy house. <laughs> it's fun. It's colorful. I don't know. Tra- you didn't seem to like that answer. <laughs> no. Uh, uh, a chair. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Like a I chair and a half, us, though. Neither of us know how to make furniture or furniture. <laughs> but here's what I was going to say to your tactic. And again, it, it's it's become less of a conscious thing. I think when I first started, it was like all over share in hopes that they share. Now, if I tell a story and they ask me questions about the story, I'll joke that they shouldn't interview me. But then we can talk about that if they want. Mm-hmm. It's, it's almost like the more you can let go of any agenda, the more likely you are to kind of achieve your goal. Right. But there was this thing on NPR, again, I, I listened to a lot of This American Life, I love it, where they did these surveys uh, where they would be like, from a scale of one to 10, how against abortion are you? And they'd be like, I'm a 10. I don't think anyone should ever get an abortion, even if it's going to, you know, it's a rape and it's going to kill the mother and the baby's only going to live two weeks. I don't care. You have to have the baby. Though 10 out of 10. And then the woman doing the survey, and they recorded these. It's great. Great listening. The woman then tells a story about how she got pregnant when she was 16 and wasn't ready for it or whatever. And it was, uh, maybe it was sexual abuse or something. And they, like you, get rightly rightly emotional and the person listening and then so it's not just manipulation but they talk it's kind of like when you're if you're ever kidnapped god forbid you're like my name is peter mm-hmm. i'm from boston right. my mother's name is irena like i we had two cats growing up like these are ways that uh, it's so gross to talk about but people have gotten out of those situations mm-hmm. is because you're trying to not be uh, anonymous you're trying to be like i'm like you you're yeah. just screaming i'm like you I'm also here with you, and I understand, and I, please don't hurt me. Similarly, these people tell these stories about their personal abortions. Forgive me, I don't remember the specific details, but I do know that they tell the story, they chat, they gab like gals, they have a nice little <laughs> gab, and then at the end they go, would you mind if we do the survey again? And, the, and one of the questions is scale from one to ten, one being anybody can get them, ten nobody can get them. Oh, that's so interesting. And they go to one. They go, I think that's so everyone should wow. be able to get an abortion. So that's in the same chat. Yeah. So there's something going on. It's not as slimy as it seems. It's more about establishing a secure connection mm-hmm. with somebody. It's about resting. Relating. It's about relating. relating. Allison, you're here 
alive at the same time I'm alive. We both wake up. We both have needs. They're either met or they're not. We're tired sometimes. We're pregnant sometimes. We have to pee. Whatever it is. But what a phenomenon that we're here together. Right. And the more that we can remind each other that we're all in it together, the more we set aside our agendas of, well, I don't talk about those things, or I believe these, or I'm a Republican, or I'm a liberal, or I'm this, I'm that. That all kind of goes away, and it just becomes two people in suspended air Mm -hmm. really connecting. And I would say that happens on every third podcast of mine. Mm -hmm. And we go for it, every one of them. (laughs) (laughs) Every third is is a pretty good... Oh, that's uh, not bad. Yeah, that's a really good batting average. (laughs) Um, I just have to clarify that... What? Some butter. (laughs) (laughs) What if that's going to be the the way I finish that sentence every time now? I'm going to make some ghee. I don't know what that is, but it's... Very good. Um, I have to clarify, there have been numerous times on this podcast that I have cried while talking to a guest, and those have all been genuine. The story I told earlier was interviewing someone for a magazine. It was... And it was a million years ago, and that was a sort of not entire... I sort of squeezed some tears out to get her to reveal something. Oh, interesting. But... On the podcast, because I'm now, I do it differently. Those are all genuine tears. Ah. For real. Because <laughs> I realize I sound like an asshole. Because I, I don't want people to go back and be like, oh, but I remember when you cried then. Was that phony? No, that was I real. Um, we're, all, we're all trying to figure it out. But the more you do it, the more you let go of any method. Yes. And you're just trying to talk. And you're not thinking, boy, I wish they'd talk. It's like getting better at fucking. You're not like, boy, I wish I was really getting this reaction. You just just be there with the person. Just be Listen. present. Be yeah. present, Yeah. Don Roman, what's your response to those that assume you're gay? Huh. I, I wish there were. Do you get that a lot? No, I, I'm not aware of gay rumors. That's an interesting question. Um, I would be proud to be gay. <laughs> I think that should go without saying. So if I, every once in a while, you check in the folder, you're like, "Am I? Am I gay?" <laughs> no, <laughs> I, I don't think so. Um, so there, I, I wouldn't consider it anything to be ashamed of, obviously, or hide from. And I, I've, I've surrounded myself with loving people who love me for me. And basically, even beyond comedy, what I do full time is explore who I am. Mm-hmm. I know that sounds selfish, but something I say on my podcast is like, just try and change yourself. Just try and work on yourself. Who else are you going to work on? Someone else? I'm going to work on right. Some. I'm going to work on my dad. <laughs> the fuck? It's a recipe about? for. Being miserable. Exactly. You can work on yourself. And I do a lot of introspection and work on myself. So if I, if I were gay, I, I'd like to say it very publicly, I would be proud and I, it would be a interesting story that I wouldn't resist to be like, boy, I, I really <laughs> thought I was straight until I was 37. Then one day something clicked and now I am gay. I wouldn't resist that. And uh, if there are gay rumors, I'm, I'm, I'm okay with that. Do Let's get you, some gay rumors going. <laughs> you want to have kids, right? I do. Yeah. Do you think when you have kids, you will have less time to work on yourself and, and do self-exploration? And I ask that as someone who's about to have a kid in yeah. the next in, – in a matter of weeks. 20 minutes. <laughs> a matter of weeks or could be during this podcast because yeah. I – like I do not know what's on the other side of that in terms of where my focus will be. I know that being pregnant, I have – has has really career-wise sidelined me yeah. in a way that I'm not comfortable with but accepting of. Yeah. Um but like even, you know, my my dream of having my own talk show, sometimes I'm like, how much is that even my dream anymore? Mm. 
Um, but it doesn't feel like giving up. It feels like more just being like, I'm accepting what's going to, whatever comes my way, I'm, I'm sort of accepting of it. I'm not trying to force anything to happen anymore. Um, but I do have this, this fear that once the kid is here, who will I be? And everyone tells me like, you'll be the same person, but I, but it is like, but I'm already changing. No, I, I would, I understand. Okay. I don't have children. But it seems to me that everything's going to change. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I'm not saying that to you. I'm saying that to both of us. Right. And I'm speaking as someone who considers that. Okay, we have kids. All of a sudden, uh, there's another thing that my friend Rob Bell said, like, it's like your heart jumps out of your body and has legs and runs around. So clearly, your priorities are going to change. What, what you said made me think of something. I quote Ram Dass endlessly. He's a great writer, teacher. Um, he said, when you're too busy thinking of what could be, you're missing out on what is. So when I hear you saying, like, I'm going to have this baby and maybe your priorities will shift, I don't – of course, what lunatic would go, don't give up on your dreams? <laughs> I hear someone going, this is what's happening. And I happen to be of the opinion that, yes, will it be harder to meditate, find quiet time to meditate? Or um, I, I love to sit in the sauna and listen to audiobooks or whatever the fuck I do. Yeah. Do you have your own sauna? I do. Yeah. Congratulations. If you have $7,000, you can buy an infrared sauna, and I highly recommend it if you have a garage. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm like, I don't know where I would put it, you but. Put it <laughs> you can get a small one that would literally fit right here. And I. In studio sauna. <laughs> I, I highly recommend it. I it would it. be murder on my hair, but I get what you're saying. I wonder. You could get a dry sauna. These are dry. Infrared means it, oh. it's not actually hot in the sauna. It heats you up with infrared rays, which sounds suspicious. Sounds like it's microwaving you. No, I know. I did a lot of research. I bought a uh, what is it called? The things people used to detect ghosts. A U- Geiger counter. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a U whatever the bad rays, and I I scan mine for the okay. bad rays. There's no bad rays yeah. coming out of it. Anyway, I I, lo- I love that. I use that. There's a lot of me time. Do I, I go to therapy? I read and all blah blah blah. I sit on the porch and just stare at trees. Yes, having kids is definitely going to take a big bite, if not eliminate. <laughs> Most of that. Right. But I am of the opinion that everything viewed from a certain perspective is working together to help your awakening. And Mm -hmm. I don't necessarily mean reaching nirvana. (laughs) I mean, it's the work that you're to do. Right. Like your self-actualization. Exactly. So authentically and presently and passionately having children can absolutely get you to the same place that fasting and meditating in a cave could get you. That's that's not me saying that, by the way. I believe that. But that's something I read over and over again. It's like if you're a carpenter and you fully presently engage in what it's like to build a shed, the mysteries of the universe will be revealed to you. Mm-hmm. So whatever it is we're doing, if it looks holy, if it looks like self-improvement or not, this is the universe welcoming us to the work that we're to do. And no karma or whatever you want to call it is more clear than an infant. Here it is. You said yes to it and it's going to change you and, and you're definitely going to change the baby. You're raising the baby. But that's the work. That's I, I don't see as much of a separation between uh, the stuff of life and the stuff that's like helping us out. It's like mm-hmm. – it's called karma yoga. You're, you're living your life. You're waiting in line at, at Whole Foods and you're allowing that to be an experience that is either moving you towards truth and wakefulness or illusion and, and deceit. 
tell me if you relate to this because I had this experience recently. Um, I had I had two experiences that were were very similar. Um, I had a baby shower and there were people from it's raining babies in here. <laughs> <laughs> people from all these different chunks of my life were there, like really good friends that I hadn't seen in a long time, and. I felt like I was, it was so great to see them. And I walked away from that thinking, I feel like I've positioned myself these days as this person who like doesn't have a ton of, like has a lot of friends, but I'm not that close with them. And I'm kind of reclusive and I liked, I'm a homebody. I don't really go out. I'm a little bit socially awkward. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I don't think that's, but that's not, that is a version of me, but it's not who I really am. Who I was around these people that I went to college with, these people that I knew in New York, these people that I knew when I lived in Orange County and played in a band, like, <laughs> that's more, it was like these authentic bits, like shards of authenticity of me in that room yeah. that I'm no longer in direct contact with. Mm. And it made me think like I need to connect with that more. And then recently I saw a couple of friends from college again and I had that that reminder. Wait, you missed those shards of yourself? Yes. Uh-huh. And I have allowed myself to just be like I check Twitter all the time. I check Instagram, but I don't really go out. Mm-hmm. That's who I am. I'm a, I'm a real introvert. Mm-hmm. And like I kind – obviously, obviously the way I fashion my life now is true. But it's not the whole story. Mm-hmm. And it, I really was like, I really, and this is so ephemeral. I was actually just talking about this. We were talking about New Year's resolutions on um, my podcast. And I was just talking about this. Like, I really want to integrate with these older versions of me that are feel more, like I want to be the most authentic version of myself. And I don't know that I am right now. Caveat, once the baby comes, I'll be like, haha, remember when I cared about that? Okay. Sure. <laughs> right. But for you, I know that you have you know, transitioned from in a, in a more stark or dramatic way than I think a lot of other comedians. Um, you were this one person and now you're this totally different person. Do you feel like it's just been forward momentum? Like, are there things that I miss? Yeah. Are, and do you feel like who you are right now is the most authentic version of you? I do, but isn't that how it always feels? (laughs) You know, you're like, this is, this is me. Until you run into a bunch of people from your past and you're like, now yeah. I feel very weird. and But good, but oh, weird. I understand. I, I wouldn't say that I've had that experience. When I hang out with people from my past, I go, oh, I, I used to be uh, less clear than I am now. Yeah. I used to be playing a part. I, I was uh, – I thought that I looked like a soft, doughy, awkward, loud, chubby-faced, gap-toothed, loud-mouthed class clown kid were you gap tooth because your teeth yeah. are so perfect now. no i know i had really nice dental work okay. <laughs> but you know you look in the mirror and you go oh that's that's who i am and then your friends and your family they go that's who you are mm-hmm. you're tall you probably play basketball right you're like yeah i probably play basketball you know and then you hang out with your friends and they like certain things and you're like i, I kind of like those things and and next thing you know, you've built this sandcastle that is who you think you are. I always liken it to building a sandcastle underwater, though, because life changes and then where did it go? Where did I go? Mm-hmm. That I actually think what you're saying is, is, is fairly profound from a spiritual perspective because people are so certain when they're like, I like <laughs> whatever. I like chicken. You know <laughs> what I mean? Or uh, I don't like going out. Right. Or I'm not an exercise person. Or I'm shy. Or... Uh, I'm confident. 
Well, which you? That that's one of the things. That's one of the first steps to me to waking up in a certain way, in a sense. Is is realizing just how ethereal you are. Mm-hmm. You're just like, oh, there's all these sets of preferences and aversions and attractions, and I like and I don't like, and blah, blah, blah. and then you realize as you get older that all of these things are coming and going, and you're trying to hold on to the ones that are really, really true, uh, and let go of the ones that are, that aren't true. But I haven't had the experience where I hang out with people and I'm like, except I'll give you this. So Valerie and I want to get married. We, I, I've been very open about that. I, I, I'm madly in love with her and we want to get married. And I was like, it's funny. I catch myself. The part of me that got married the first time wasn't afraid at all. And I'm not afraid of Valerie, but I am afraid of uh, thinking of my life in 50 years. It's mm-hmm. frightening to go, and in 50 years we'll be here and our kids will be here. It's, I, I just get overwhelmed. I don't, I don't want to plan for two weekends from now. Forget about 50 years from right. now. So I get a little overwhelmed at the idea of thinking about your whole life. When I got married the first time, we're just talking about this today, I was in the groom room with my friend Daniel and I just wasn't nervous. Like I was just like – it's a little embarrassing. I was like, you know, my mom was like, you should get married and uh, Christians get married if they have sex and uh, we're, I'm going to move to Chicago. What am I going to move to Chicago with my girlfriend? That's living in sin. I'm not, so it seemed very clear and laid out. And that's all kind of fucked up and muddled. But then there was also a purity to that. It was almost like I was pure as the driven snow. I was, sure. like, I was like a dove. And doves aren't afraid. Mm-mm. And they're just like, I love this other dove and I'm going to be with the <laughs> And I was like, now that I'm thinking about getting married again, I'm like, I'm going through the rubble of who I used to be looking for a dove wing. Mm-hmm. Just enough of that purity, just enough of that innocence that I can, while I still have it, while you feel the temptation, uh, not regularly, but I felt the temptation in the past, usually before Valerie, to just be a guy who will be on TV and he'll have some money and a little bit of notoriety and I'll get laid and nobody will tell me not to drink or smoke pot. And uh, to quote W. Kamel Bell when he did my podcast, it's like, I wish my Xbox had a pussy and <laughs> fuck my Xbox and order Postmates and just kind of be out for myself. And, and I see a lot of people in my field make that choice. And I think maybe it's because they went digging for the dove and or they didn't go digging for the dove. I, I want to find that part of me that that had some faith and had some goodness and had a little bit of naivety that was just kind of like no it's okay like follow your heart trust yourself trust the world and I was glad that I was able to find that I was like I'm glad I still have this Mm -hmm. it was almost like a reading I was like I still have 13% pure (laughs) dove in me right even after all the drugs and the fucking and and the drinking and bumming cigarettes in Boise Idaho after two shows that I talked about my dick or whatever it was there's still some of that me in there and I'm like okay I need that I'm going to use that to get married (laughs) no I feel like that's kind of exactly what I'm talking about yeah actually because it's like it was it was remembering who I was before all the things in my life before showbiz (laughs) yeah before show but but other stuff too the the, the sort of like different little thing little tragedies that were felt like big tragedies in my life at the time that's right of like things that made me be like, oh, don't get that close to people. They can that's hurt right. you. Don't. The reason I said that's right is because you, you build the wall. Yeah. Before people, the wall, before yeah. the, I started building all the self-protection walls and started questioning 
everything in this way that before I grew up, really. Yeah. Like I'm a grown up now, but right. I don't yeah. want to. I I miss that exuberance of who I was before. Remember when you? Were, I I have a vivid memory of being a, a young kid about knee high and my parents having cocktail parties, and I was just like, why do they talk that way? <laughs> But uh, what are you what are you uh, investing in these days, uh, Jay? <laughs> well, I, you know, I don't really do a stock market. I like real estate because it's real. <laughs> and a fake laugh, and they oh, fake God. laugh. And you're just down there, like you're a kid. You talk like Trotolodio, and you and you slap an ant, and you fucking <laughs> do a barrel roll down a grass hill. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? You're there, and you don't understand. And the reason is, is because we start to get scared, and we build up these defenses mm-hmm. and our ego was one of them and and our personality is one of them and, and that's why it's comforting to be like i don't like i don't trust asians you know what i mean because <laughs> the world is frightening to you and you go like at least there are no asians at this party and yet, we're all doing these fucking stupid things and really standing firmly thinking our underwater sandcastle is a real thing and building the wall that keeps out the bad stuff but it also keeps out a lot of the joy and the light yeah um and that's another that's one of those uh Leonard Cohen? Leonard Cohen? Did he write Hallelujah? Yeah, Leonard Cohen. Yes. He has that great line about like the cracks are how the light gets in. So we have these walls and that's kind of again what crashing is about. You build these walls, you have your comfortable life. Then you get some pain and it cracks that facade or maybe an experience cracks that facade and you start to get some of that sunlight on your skin Mm -hmm. again. You're like, shit, I used to be a little kid running around in the light. I was a dove. So I understand that. But I do think... I, I, I'm, I'm a little bit guilty of going the other way of looking back and going like, look at these idiots. They don't even know this, this or this. That's well, that, yeah. Ego. I mean, you have, like I said, a more, did you just say it's your own ego? It's my ego. Yeah. But, but I feel also in listening to your story, like you kind of have moved, this is my own judgment, <laughs> moved from darkness to light. I mean, I was in a, I was in a place where I claim to have a lot of answers and, and it was, it was very liberating to have those answers not work. Right. <laughs> it was like that feeling when, uh, you know, you knock over a Jenga thing <laughs> and it's kind of like, Oh shit. But that kind of is a fun part of the game. And then you rebuild it. I'd like to think I'm rebuilding it better. Um, you know, sometimes I think in 10 years, am I going to look back at the answers that I'm giving you now about karma and about, karma yoga and being like life is going to give you the lessons of the universe if we're doing them consciously will i look back and think that's stupid the reason i don't think i will is because of the people the 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 wise people that have gone before me that spent their lives looking for this stuff and have kind of come to those conclusions but there's a chance i could look back and be like what a fucking pretentious shit (laughs) this is something jed says he's like just talk about how funny the show is would you please (laughs) not mention ramdas or joseph campbell does he really say that he's breaking my balls like he's Uh kind of lightly teasing me but when we pitched the show to hbo i'm talking about christ i'm talking (laughs) talking about the hero's journey and all that stuff he's like say it's funny (laughs) it's gonna have a lot of comedians being funny (laughs) and all that other stuff is there if you want to look for it but it's that's what i think gives the shows that i love an interesting backbone is just a hint of like oh i think there was a little bit of uh transcendence in there i think there's Mm -hmm. a little bit of truth just a little bit and it's not preachy it's not telling you to quit smoking it's it's telling you we're all in this together right that's what it's saying right let's do a fast just me or everyone Sometimes I ponder on something I have thought or done. 
Remember, this is where people write in with things they think or do, and they wonder, is it just me? Is it everyone? And we weigh in. Okay. Laura Wilhite says, uh, I always wanted a job where I can answer the phone with just my last name. It's everyone. Yeah. I'll, I'll give you another one kind of in the same ballpark. I don't know if this is true for women. You can, you can represent all women. Oh, please. I, I've never met a guy who didn't want, you'll represent men, <laughs> <laughs> that didn't want to come out in Vegas in a tuxedo and sing the opening lines of a song and have the band kick in. Oh. You know what I mean? It, I have, yeah, same. I haven't had that desire, but I can relate to right? it. Doesn't that just make sense? But the idea that you can answer the phone, go, <laughs> you know what I mean? That's a good one. Right. Holmes. Holmes isn't a good one. But you want to, What's her last name? Uh, it's Wilhite. Wilhite. I hope I'm pronouncing it right. This yeah. is Wilhite. Yeah. yeah, that's great. It's very I, like I Law and like Order SVU. Yeah. But I, um, I get no kick from champagne. Audience applauds and then the band kicks. Oh, yeah. The lights come up. <laughs> Sarah says, have never finished a tube of chapstick. Yeah, I don't think I have either. Good point, Sarah. You're going to lose it. Well, you do get to that point where it's just so raw right. that you're just rubbing the plastic the nub. rim. Yeah. Yeah, you got You're just exfoliating. Action. But some people, I think, will go real deep and they'll they'll – start putting their finger on that and then applying it. But I've never gotten to the bottom. I have not either. I'm going to call that everyone. Rizza, but I don't think it's the Rizza, says, when I was little, I thought to taste in recipes meant add those ingredients only when you taste it while cooking. I have never heard. Add those ingredients only. Only only when, when you taste it while cooking. Like add it, like as opposed to to taste, which actually means like to to your liking. Whatever you think is right. Yeah, I thought, I think... This person thinks it meant like, just add it till you can taste it. Oh. I bet you're not the only one. I bet you're not. But not me. That totally makes sense. Yeah. I get it. John Clifford says, wish everyone would go with 2017 instead of 2017 when referring to the year. Yeah, 2018. Yeah. I, I, I haven't I heard it. any 2017s. I, can I throw in? Please. Never call 911-911. Who does? Every once in a while. Really? Every once in a while. That's wrong. And that's when, it's usually someone foreign. And that's when 911 happened. (laughs) First of all, you call it. You're talking to the Beatles. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'll I'll agree with that. I'll say that's everyone. Yeah. Um, Leela Rolling Stone says, have to pee badly, finally get to the bathroom and have sudden fear that I'm actually having a have to pee dream and am peeing the bed. Oh, very nice. that. I think her name's Leela. Mm-hmm. That's perfect. I love that name. Uh, I think that's great. I think one of the key things we should be doing all the time is asking ourselves if we're dreaming. That's one of the ways you can train yourself to- To lucid dream, to lucid right? Dream, exactly. Do you do that? Are you able to do I, it? I do do that. I love that. It's, it's, it's a great reality experiment because when you lose a dream, you're like, holy shit, this is exactly like reality. I mean, I don't mean it's kind of like reality. You're like, this is reality. I've been in dreams where I'm like, Fuck. Holy shit. And then it disintegrates because I get too excited. Right. My heartbeat goes up and everything goes to shit. But uh, I know what she's talking about, but I've never done it the other way. I've And I've peed in dreams and realized, oh, I'm dreaming that I'm peeing. Right. I have to get up. <laughs> yeah, I have. I love that she's doing it the other way. I've had the realization in a dream that it's a dream. 
Yeah. But I've never questioned reality, although I have felt strongly like this feels like a dream yeah. or I wish this were a dream or this is all dreamlike. But I've never actually wondered. Yeah. You just look at your hands. That's what I do. In lucid dreams, what do your hands look like? They look like catcher's mitts. They look terrible. You're really bad at conjuring up your own hands. Mm-hmm. So if something happens and it's very surreal, even if it's mild, you either look at a clock because you can't read in dreams t- typically. Some people argue against that. Right. I have read in dreams. Brain, right brain. I think you think you're reading. Okay. I don't mean to you, – that sounds so pretentious. <laughs> but it's like you're dreaming that you're reading. But right. if you're lucid, you can look at a clock and it looks like it's – T, S, 5, mm-hmm. and then the infinity symbol. Not an 8, an infinity symbol <laughs> outside. And uh, that's that's a clue that you're dreaming too. But your hands are a clock. I don't think this one's true. It doesn't work for me turning on a light. And if nothing happens when you turn the light mm-hmm. on, that's a trick. But I've also turned on a light in a dream. So that's not always true. The hands is a good one. So the point is to train yourself to begin to ask, is this a dream? Yeah. And then once you once it is then you can start controlling the dream is that what yeah, lucid dreaming is if you identify that it you look at your hands and they look weird you go oh this is a dream and then you have a couple choices you can you can continue in the narrative of the dream but do it consciously this is why it has these real life applications mm-hmm. is and i think that's the most valuable thing is it makes you more present and aware people that are going through that are kind of sleepwalking through life which i we all have aren't wondering, is this a dream? They're just accepting everything as it is, which I think is a dangerous and uncreative way Mm -hmm. of existing. But questioning things and wondering, that's why I like your question. If you're peeing and you're like, wait a minute, am I asleep right now? I think that's great. Because one time you will be, then you can get up and fly to Paris and fuck George Clooney. Is that what you've done in your lucid dreams? Very hard to have sex. It's really hard to have sex. Um, typically, what I do in a lucid dream is is as little as possible because if you fly or something, you'll get excited and you'll wake up. So you try and stay calm and maybe talk to somebody or – depends on how firm of a grasp you have of it. But typically – and this is one of the great lessons it can teach you too is when you're in a dream, you're not judging it. You're like – you're there and you hear, let's say, a cat, like a stray cat meowing. And it's that annoying kind of cat call. You're not annoyed by it. You're like, holy shit, that sounds just like a cat. What a fat, you have fascination with it. And if we could only have that sort of approach to our waking life, instead of judging everything, just observing it and going, what a phenomenon. This, this, this cushion looks so, look how when I touch it, it kind of changes the fact. I I wish I could be more like that. It It just sounds like meditating while you're asleep, really. Well, that's what the Tibetans do. They're like, look, you sleep eight hours, six hours a night. Uh, What a waste, unless you're trying to do it consciously. Mm. And this guy, he's a lama named Lama Suryadas, did my podcast. And he was very interesting. He was talking about how uh, they try and remain conscious while they're falling asleep. Meaning they're like, "I'm, I'm almost asleep and I am asleep. Like there's no break. And all of it, and this is something I like to point out because I think meditating and, and yoga or whatever it might be kind of gets this reputation for being soft or something. It's like, ah, oh, some fucking LA hippie doing meditation and eating kale. Okay, <laughs> I understand. I see what you're saying. But at the same time, these are people that are training every day to remain conscious when they die. <laughs> 
Yeah, that is not quite a discipline to that. Exactly. Like meditating, your butt hurts. Okay, that's good practice to remain associated with your awareness and not your body. So when you're dying and you're choking on your own fluids, death is fucking grisly. If you can stay in that calm place where your awareness is just like an unflickering candle, that's fucking bad ass. That is a beautiful death. And we all do it. it I think there's something about doing it and, and trying and having it be a goal of your life to not die in fear and shitting your pants. I'll let you know how I do. Please. <laughs> if you can let me know, then you did well. Yeah, exactly. I'll come back in a, a dream. <laughs> I'll knock over your Dasanis. Um, I really feel like that's the profound thing we should end on. But <laughs> instead, I'm going to say Jane Montgomery says, Uh-oh, use Jane. cheap plastic non-scratch pot scrubbers as the best exfoliating sponges ever in the shower. Yes, on my body. Wow. No, I've never done that. I think Jane knows that no one does that. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> but just like everything, people say things and they go, do you love me? <laughs> it's like advertising. Mm-hmm. Why do we love advertising? It's, a, it's a, one of my favorite lines in Mad Men. He goes, every ad is just whispering, you are okay. Yeah. So she's like, I'm not saying that she's needy. I'm saying there's just like kind of a lovely opportunity to be like, yeah, that sounds great, Jane. But I feel actually <laughs> to get to get Good a little bit deep and also self-congratulatory, I do feel like that is what this segment is. This segment is like, Absolutely. here's something weird. Am I alone? And even if you are, you're okay. Yeah. And isn't it a good feel? That's what comedy is. When right. I go, you know, I was at lunch today with Val and we were, there was a balcony above us, not a balcony, but like a, a rised level of the restaurant. So the guy above us is right there. And at one point he leaned over the railing to our table and coughed. <laughs> now that's not quite funny enough to do a stand up, but even you laughing, I'm like, ah, I'm not alone. That was crazy. Yeah. That's why we love Curb Your Enthusiasm. It's like, Oh, you did the, you know, somebody finally giving voice and going, I've done that. I see that. And it's a beautiful thing. The more unified, that's why comedy that is dividing, that, that it's almost like making it us and them. Mm-hmm. Like think of racist jokes or sexist jokes or homophobic jokes. It's just, again, perpetuating division. Right. It, it's such an ugly thing. It's such a wasted opportunity for everyone to leave a little bit more Truthfully, not advertise bullshit. I just want you to buy Yoohoo so I make you feel loved. But you can actually leave going, you know, I thought I was alone, but I had a good laugh. And now I don't feel as alone because that man or woman on stage was loud and bright. Lights, microphone, Mm -hmm. they were loud and bright. They were the leader of the pack. And they told me that they're afraid to die. And now I feel less alone. And that's beautiful. Or I you can agree. go up and be like, you ever see a fag? It's like, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah. I hate using that word, but you understand what I'm saying. Uh-huh. <laughs> no, I do. Fuck you. I mean, to- <laughs> but to me, that's when I'm watching comedy, that's the difference between like a haha, that's clever or like a true visceral belly laugh. The true visceral belly yeah. laugh is, well, also so- sometimes stuff that is so silly or absurd will make me laugh that way. Like in your HBO special, the... I'm going to get the words wrong, but <laughs> Dishnecks or Dishnecks. Oh, Double Snakes. Yeah, Double Snakes. Yeah. Right, but. Dishnecks. Yes, that. Yeah. That part, Dishnicks. I actually, I, I forget if I told you this or not. <laughs> I literally, because I'm pregnant, literally peed my pants during that part. I was laughing so hard. <laughs> you did not. I would have remembered. I, no, okay, yeah. No, I literally, I literally did. I had to do the thing where I'm like, ah, oh, and I like run to the bathroom, try not to let my pants really touch anything. But because oh, that great. part was so silly. I'm so honored. Um, 
but those but that like visceral laughter for me is usually it's the it's the recognition yeah it's the like yes people don't normally articulate this but i have that too right 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 right. and there's something magical about going a moment that a lot of people because that joke took place waiting in line at starbucks would tune out look at their phone i do this too i'm not saying other people this is all of us we look at our phones we try and think i'll be happy when i have my coffee Mm-hmm. I'll be happy when I have my cookie. I'll be happy when this plane lands. I'll be happy when I'm out of traffic. I'll be happy when I'm done with work. I'll be happy when I'm in bed. I'll be happy when I'm eating. I'll be happy when I'm having sex. It's always later. Yeah. But there's something I think going on about I was in line. So it's a it's a place of lack. Clearly I need something. I'm in line for it. And there was life. It was hiding. It was there the whole time. And I struggle with this all the time. What was it that she was trying to say? Can who- I help who's next? <laughs> Dow Snacks. And I was with my opener, Chris Thayer. Uh, he opened for me for years. And he looked at me and he was like, you just wrote a bit, didn't you? He knew <laughs> that that was my sense of humor. Just based on her saying that. She just went, Dow Snacks? And I was like, oh, my God. It's just, it's all these things. It's not just missing sunsets. You know what I mean? Yeah. We're missing a lot. And that's okay, but it's nice to just get your head above the clouds for a second and hear someone go, no snacks. And you're like, I'm going to tell tale of this hundreds of times. And what the, here's the best thing. That woman who said it has no idea it was her. She'll never know. There, She has so many fans, thousands of fans of that person. And she's just somewhere... In a in a Midwest airport, still going. Doesn't <laughs> she could speak fine? By the way, sometimes I do that bit, and I feel people pull away, right? Because no, I she think was just I'm making rushing. fun. She was like in the bad way. She was just like, "Hey, does snacks? <laughs> what are you? Does snacks? <laughs> right? I'm very pl- proud of that bit. That's what a bit that I'll be sad that I I you know the rules of stand up I can't do anymore. Can I help who's next is what she was Can trying to I say. Can I help who's next? And then I go break it down. Can I? Duh. <laughs> help who's snack <laughs> next. Snacks. <laughs> Duh snacks. <laughs> oh my god. Uh. We almost called the special double snakes. But it made no sense until after you saw it. Well, Pete Holmes, thank you so 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 much for coming by. You do it? Did you just do it? No, I just moved to highlight. Oh, I thought it was like that. That was your remote. I was like, how cool would that be? Thank you. I'm honored. I love Yammer, and I hope your guests are okay that I monologued a little bit. My guests will love this. I hope this was a wonderful episode. Um, Later, when I see Val, I will not say about this one. They'll like it. (laughs) Even though I think they'll like it. (laughs) <laughs> it's so dismissive. <laughs> the The audience will like it. <laughs> that is a. It, what's funny though, because if I were to say that about an episode, that wouldn't mean that I d- didn't think it was good. Yeah, no, it doesn't mean that I don't think it's good as much as it's like I didn't get there. Yeah, that the I episode know. Yeah. got there, but I don't think I got there. Everybody knows we. It doesn't even if you don't host a podcast. We've all had those moments where you're, you know lingering at the end of a date and you're on their patio and and you don't even smoke but you're smoking cigarettes and suddenly you're just (laughs) having the best conversation of your life and you're like how did we get here it really does feel like another place right and other times you go that was a very great interview that was a fun (laughs) that was a fun conversation either way we win but sometimes you really feel like you're like we got there. Like, right. It's one thing to get there alone. 
you can sit there and be quiet and appreciative of birds and the, the sun and eating granola or whatever you're doing. <laughs> but if you can hold someone's hand and cross through the threshold together, that's that magic that's hard to get. I'm glad it's hard to get. If I could do it three out of three, I'd just be like, well, that's not that special. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Two out of three are still great. And I would like to plug my podcast. It's called Please the, Do. You Made It Weird. Yes. Um, let's go around the table and plug our shit. Follow me at on Twitter at Allison Rosen. Follow the show's feed at ARI, show's Twitter feed at ARIYMBF. If you like what you're hearing, subscribe. iTunes.com slash Allison Rosen. Jeff, where should we go for you? You can find me on Facebook and Twitter at Colonel Jeff Fox. And Pete, let them know where to find you and what they should look. Just plug plug all your I'll things. plug it. You Do can it. currently, if you want to hear the Double Snakes joke in all its glory, it's on HBO Go or HBO Now. I believe you can get free trials of those things as well. Uh, if you don't have those services, um, it's called Faces and Sounds. It's available now. And then on February 19th, Crashing, the show that I made with Judd Apatow, loosely based on the true, at times, sad story that <laughs> I told today. Uh, but it is very, very funny. A lot of great comedians, Sarah Silverman, TJ Miller, Artie Lang, Hannibal Burris, just the funniest people I know that came and did the show. It was amazing. So that's going to be out as eight episodes. So eight weeks starting February 19th on HBO After Girls. It's the Apatow nice (laughs) and uh (laughs) my podcast is called you made it weird if you like not just my opinions but hearing other people's opinions on the meaning of life and god and happiness and figuring it out and love and breakups and all that good stuff there's so many great episodes just find anyone that you're interested in and listen i hope you like it perfect thank you again for coming by listeners thank you for listening i love you goodbye hey do you know and Rose and Show. We had a good time, but now we gotta go. Yeah, Alice and Rose is your new best friend.